podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool. This is a robbery. I need you cool. Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're shut to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our 11th installment of Under the Influence, where each month during the second season, myself, along with my special guests, have been taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our 11th film that we will be placing under the microscope this month is Tarantino's spaghetti western masterpiece, The Hateful Eight. And the films that we will be reviewing are John Carpenter's The Thing and Sergio Leone's For a Few Dollars More. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show the dynamic duo known as the podcast Nobody Asked For. All the way from England, it's Sir Ian Harry's and Sir Graham Jones. Welcome back, gentlemen. M.A. Tarantino be with you always. It's good to be back. I unfortunately thought this was an Ennio Morricone podcast. <laughs> it <laughs> so is. It don't, is. Don't, yeah, don't, don't know how prepped I am now. I, I'm just curious as to where my knighthood came from, really. So, I try I'll to be nice, it. you know, I'll give my English people uh, a little, you know. Look, we took yeah. your country from you, this giant plethora of land that you could have had with all its amazing human beings say. on it. Like Florida, you could have had Florida, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi. Think about what you could have done here in America if it had been part of England. Uh, wow. did, you, did you know one in eight Americans is a Californian? I learned this today. <laughs> I, so did I. I just learned <laughs> that as well. And I'm an American. That's how much I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. That is weird. That is weird. One in eight. See, your listeners <laughs> are learning things already. Yeah. 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 Unlike in the American school system, am I right? Hey. <laughs> Listen here. We only want to teach what we want to teach, all right? Yeah. Hiding under desks. Well, I mean, do the Brits, do you get into your your plethora of dirty deeds and evil ways do you guys teach that or is it just kind of like 
Look, India. <laughs> we, oh. We, yes, we, yes, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Listen, listen, we're, we're bad, but it's like the old, you guys might be too young for this, but it's like the old <laughs> 1980s commercials here in America for drugs where a guy comes in and he's uh, this upset. His dad goes, you're smoking. He goes, where'd you learn to do drugs? He goes, I learned it by watching you. That's us to you. So all the horrible things we did, you know, they're just chips off the old block. I mean, you really ran with it, though. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that sure. What about America? Don't you understand? America, fuck yeah. I mean, come on. We got eagles. I mean, we've got Budweiser made with eagles' tears and dreams. It's That's amazing. the dream. That's the dream. I mean, it's so good. You you have fallen in love with our football. I'm just have. saying. I you have. have. My, I think you're my... more of an American football fan than you are a regular football fan, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I, 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 I certainly am. Yeah, I'm about half and half. Half and half? Yeah. Like the milk. What's the other half? <laughs> we haven't figured that out yet, have we? It's eagles' tears in America. It's half milk, half eagle tears. When you're watching an English football game or whatever, international pitch, whatever, gives a fuck. Anyways, when you're watching one, <laughs> do at some point go, bitch. hit that motherfucker, right? Like, don't you feel like you want to say, hit that motherfucker? Like, when someone does a slide tackle and takes out one of your players, don't you just want someone, like a giant lineman, to pancake fucking smash them the next play? I mean, it happens. Uh, yeah, but I mean, someone then rolls around on the ground like they got like... shot and, like, their knee's going to be out of their skin. And yet, all they really did was just really get their grass grass thing. I, I'm I'm going to send you a video of. Uh, so we a few years ago had uh, an Italian centre back who um, took a real dislike to a winger who played for Leicester, and he it, the tackle is basically assault. But I'll send you the video. <laughs> How many of those words and phrases did you understand, there, Scott? All of them. <laughs> that was. He's a man understood I'm, assault. Yeah, I'm gonna be. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I believe there's a U, an S, and an A in assault. So thank you. All right. That's all I gotta say. That's our word. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't spell assault without USA. Without the I USA, baby. <laughs> I have become a big fan of Wrexham just from the show. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, nice. I, I have thoroughly loved that show so i've you know I've, I've enjoyed soccer but there are moments where it's you know it's just america and our violence like i guess that's what it is like i want to see someone get hurt and do like i want to see someone get hit and sometimes when i see those guys rolling around after they had like a little small tackle it's hard to it's hard to go oh look that's my favorite sport i'm just being honest with you. there's nothing there's <laughs> nothing wrong with a small tackle <laughs> <laughs> As long as it's consensual, yeah, you can you can small tackle whatever you want. (laughs) It's the thrust of the tackle. It's the thrust of it's the angle. It's it's a lot of different factors. Unless you're Willem Dafoe, because then that's not a small tackle. That's assault. There's also more than one angle as well when it's Willem Dafoe. (laughs) It's an isosceles triangle, I believe. (laughs) Speaking of, (laughs) I know. Hey, which way? Listen, last, last comment on dicks. Possibly. <laughs> no. No. Which, well, okay. Is it is it a very laughably thin base and a white like which way is this triangle going? No, I think it's because it's got hinges. So He's got it can hinges. become a triangle. Hinges. Do you remember? Okay, it's, right. it's basically yes. got an elbow. So you yeah. could kind of like As I'm still waiting and I will continually always assault you as you got on your feed the other day. I will assault you with my full frontal show that we have been on, but it's fine. Uh can we could talk about this? But um Willem we'll, Defoe we'll has a penis. That not only large, but it's like abnormal. So it's it's not like it's you know it's like that it's going to be an odd wand from fucking Hogwarts. You're going to be like, oh, I don't know that that's going to do anything. But it probably goes you know it just it snakes around, but with hooks. It's yeah, it's probably sixteen inches. It it belongs in a museum. He needs to have his dick plaster casted and put in a museum. We all need to just 
goal. Did you ever watch the documentary called Final Member, which is an incredible pun? There is a penis museum in Iceland which has loads of different animal penises, and they wanted oh. a human one. And it was a competition between, I think, this well-hung Swedish dude and an American guy who tattooed the American flag on his dick. Well, it probably should have been, I don't know if you're in COVID, the, uh, I forget the black gentleman's name, who was just sitting on oh, his guy. bed, and it was just <laughs> hanging there like a fucking rope to a tie off a fucking steamship. I think he should have been in there. I'm pretty sure he, that confidence is amazing. Anywho, speaking of dicks, we're talking about football real quick. As we record, we are two weeks into the NFL season, and last year when we got together, we made our predictions, and neither of us were right. My Buccaneers limped into the playoffs on Tom Brady's last year and were thoroughly beaten at home by the Cowboys, which is very hard to take every time. And I do believe the Vikings had a great season on your side, but they did not make it too far. They lost to the Giants, who look like dog shit now. But your picks were the Bills, and they got beat by the Bengals. In the uh, to get to the AFC Championship game, so neither of us were, none of us were right. Who do you got this year? Well, two weeks in now. So as we talk, my Buccaneers with the shake and bake Mayfield are two and zero. We beat the Vikings, uh, but that'll probably change by the time you listen to this in November. And you're probably like, yeah, laughing at me now. Probably we're probably still two and seven or something like that right now. Grams Ravens currently um, are two and zero and looking like they could take the stale North as the Bengals once again are getting off to a very slow start. And then yeah. Mister. Ian, coming off one of the best seasons the Vikings have ever had, is starting off 0-2. It was an awful season. Like it was it was the season where I wanted us to do worse because <laughs> we were never like we didn't need to get into the playoffs. We like we were never gonna do well in the playoffs. You can't win a Super Bowl by letting in like 35 points a game. This is true. It's just not not how that works. But does it hurt you to know that? It's kind of going to be like a Bills fan. Like, Brady finally leaves, and you still can't climb the mountain all the way to the end. Yeah, you now it, have Rodgers leave your division, and the team you now have to beat well, is the fucking division. Detroit Lions. Yeah. Like, they seem to be the cream of the crop. The, I can't believe those words come out. The Detroit fucking Lions. I, I, I think the Vikings will get better. I think the defense needs to click a bit. So I did have my far too early Super Bowl bet that I do every all year. Right. Who's your, who's um, your winner? Well, I've lost that four snaps into his first game. So the Jets were mm. my pick, but that's not going to be a thing anymore, unfortunately. Mm. So who's your follow-up? I There's a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people I, I think could get it, but I don't want to live in a world where the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Oh, don't worry. They have Dak Prescott. They'll like, find a way. Uh, like, They'll find yeah, a way to like, fuck it up. They, I just, I'm confident. I'm confident in this. 49ers, I think. Their team is just too... It's insane. Um, and possibly Dolphins. I think Dolphins look really, dolphins really good. Dolphins look good. Yes, yes, they do right now. Again, people are probably listening. They, all these teams suck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there could be a major injury. We have no idea. It's coming down the road by the time oh, we listen to this back. It, we're like, oh, man. It's going to be saw Tua. That coming. <laughs> yeah. Tua is going to get injured, and Christian McCaffrey is going to get injured. Oof, that's just yeah. that's just the way this dance goes. Mm-hmm. But I think if I had to put money down, I think I'd say 49ers. But 49ers? It'd, be fun, it'd be fun to see the Dolphins win. Would be. Mr. Jones, what do you got? Are you going to say the Ravens? Are you going to put it? Are you going to put I'm your gonna money? Back us. Yeah, I'm going to back. I think I was skeptical. I thought you give Lamar a big contract. He's got no incentive to, you know, actually mm-hmm. do anything. But we're looking good this year. Zay Flowers looks great. Um, Gus the bus is rolling forward. I just think, um, yeah, I, I'm going to go for a rematch of Super Bowl 47 against the uh, 49ers. Oh, just will the power go out again? We shall see. 
with one less Harbaugh. So, uh, yeah. Justin Tucker to get his second Super Bowl ring and then ride off into the sunset and sing some opera. God, I love that man. It makes sense. You like a kicker. It makes sense that an Englishman with English football actually favorite player is a kicker. How can you not like Justin? Justin Tucker is the greatest. He is he is better than Tom Brady is as a quarterback. Is Tom Tom Justin Tucker as oh, a kicker? You know what? I mean, Tom does have seven rings. I'm just I'm just saying. And yeah, how many did, did, did he cheat? Three. Yeah. Hey, look, look, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. You're English. <laughs> you stole countries. We did the same. Come on, that's cheating. What are you talking about? Oh, oh, this is your land? Do you have guns? Oh, no. <laughs> flag. We win. Our, our land. Come but on. But we have a flag in it now, guys. There's, <laughs> but there's a flag here. You flag. Exactly. Love that. Oh, all right. So I'm going to also go 49ers, but probably by now, who knows? I'm probably going to listen back to this in a couple months ago. What a fucking idiot. So I don't. I think my Buccaneers have a chance to make it seventh, the seventh seed in. I think the NFC is not as strong, and the division we're in, and Baker's playing good at the moment. We might sneak in with like a 9-10 win season, losing the first round to probably the 49ers, the Eagles, or something horrible. But nevertheless, make it to the middle of the pack so that we get no good draft picks next year. Mediocrity, here we come again. Uh, mediocrity. <laughs> I, know, I know it well. <laughs> well... One thing that's not mediocre is this fucking movie that we are kind of discussing, and that is The Hateful Fucking Eight, one of my top three of Tarantino's films. This is my number three. It has worked its way up there. Uh, The more I watch it, the more I love it. Absolutely, thoroughly enjoy this film. I know a lot of people didn't in their first time because it's a slow burn. He doesn't usually have a lot of slow burns. There's usually some action. I think we go an hour and a half before... Uh, we kill off the old racist, <laughs> the old racist colonel uh, before our general, before he goes down. So it's a, you know it's a long, lot of talking, a lot of ooh, but great conversations in my opinion. Gentlemen, Mr. Jones, since you were the first one to join the meet, how do you feel about the hate play, and where does it kind of sit for you in the Tarantino verse? I enjoyed it. Um, I think my hype for it was it never lived up to the hype because we had all of the um sort of the leak of the script the live readings in la all of that kind of stuff it's going to be this is going to be amazing he's not going to do it he is going to do it he finally makes it comes out and look it is a good movie but it probably feels i think ian and i were talking about this the other day when ian watched it for the first time but like it is probably the least tarantino of the tarantino movies I'd say it's probably my least favorite of his. Um, I have only watched it the once. I will preface it with that. Yeah, it's just, and you know, I've I have had other movies that I've come back to and watched, and they've you know they've, they've kind of got better with uh, revisits. But yeah, as it stands, probably probably my least favorite. But that's not to say I don't like it. But just in the pantheon of the. Of tarantino um it's it's propping up the side it's let's say it's the, it's the minnesota vikings of the, the tarantino verse <laughs> it was no need <laughs> oh man mr harry's now that i've just learned that this is your first time seeing it i'm starting to think maybe i did not research who should have been on this episode i think the term the thing is what i got lured you in so you oh, came into th- a strip show and didn't know there was going to be a donkey involved so welcome the, 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 to the donkey the thing- show the thing 100% lured me in, but it was it's a film I kept putting off because of everything that you guys have just said. 
Like, I heard all the reviews and stuff like that before I'd watched it. And it's difficult sometimes to hype yourself up to watch a three-hour film when people are saying it's the Minnesota Vikings of Quentin Tarantino movies. <laughs> I really liked it. Thank you. Finally, someone like, on this podcast. Like Graham said, like, I don't think, outside of the obvious set pieces in it, it's the least Tarantino Tarantino film. Like, Django was a Western, but it was a Tarantino Western. While this just felt like a Western. All of his other films, I think, within five minutes, it's like, oh, this is a Tarantino movie. And I don't think you necessarily get that with this one. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just a very, very good, again, homage to kind of Westerns and things like that. But uh, yeah, it's fucking great. I agree with you 100%. 100%. I think it's some of his best dialogue moments, too. This is what I really like about it is if you're a fan of Tarantino and you do give it the chance and you forget all the noise about it and you watch it, it builds lots of tension. That carriage ride, especially when Chris Mannix finally gets on. That There's some stuff going on in there and then this back and forth and you don't know who's who. So one of the reasons we picked, uh, and this is a movie that Tarantino said, this movie, The Hateful Eight, is his kind of almost thesis on the thing. This is his way of kind of creating his own, kind of like trying to get his head wrapped around you know, the short story that it was, but then the movie that it became, The Thing. And, you know, when I rewatched The Thing now with that, I could see it totally. Like, there is so mm -hmm. much. Now, The Thing is shorter, obviously. And, obviously, he goes a little bit. And there are some other movies that I talked about last month that you haven't heard yet because we're recording this before that episode comes out. But The Great Silence <laughs> also plays a bit of a role. But, yeah, The Thing and this film really do have a very simpatico relationship. Forget the fact that Kurt Russell's in both. But yeah, there's just there's just something about both of them. When you watch them, like when I was watching it the other night, I could see some of the pacing. Some of the pacing of the thing is slow. Like the thing mm. starts off real slow. You know, we don't get anything really for a while. We have a lot of oh, who is it? Who's the bad person? Who, who is someone a thing? So there's a lot of that. That as I also feel like if you go back now and rewatch Hateful Eight, you'll you'll start to see that. I think you'll. It's one of those films that I feel I've enjoyed more with each viewing. I see more and more in the film every time I watch it, which is why it steadily has climbed up my uh, my list. Yeah, it, it's it's basically n not not at the same level. I, I will I will you know add a disclaimer there, but it's an entire film of the first chapter of Inglorious Bastards. It's mm. just it is just dialogue and ramping up the tension and people under floorboards. So, yes. you know, it's, it's yes. very similar. And crutch shots. And people wearing hats inside that shouldn't be. Nah. No hats. Never mind. They didn't even watch the movie. You're not supposed to wear hats. That's how he knows Bob's lying. Come on. Pay attention to these things, all right? God damn it. Uh, hats. Hats. Hats that hats, hats. they would have been fine with. It was, the, it was the fact they were Mexicans. Well, and yeah, no Mexicans <laughs> are dogs. Mexicans are dogs. But she lets dogs in now. She lets dogs in now. <laughs> Uh, all right, gentlemen, let's do your questions. This is now officially a chance I can ask you both your second set because I had you on, Mr. Harry's, by yourself for Pulp Fiction. When you two joined me for Inglorious Bastards, we gave Graham his chance for his first set of questions. And then we did that thing with Petros where we talked about Tarantino's 60th birthday. There were no questions there. We had a bunch of stuff. Petros beat you both barely. Awful game of Jeopardy. <laughs> with no, 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 money no, 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 no. Let, let's, sorry. <laughs> In Graham's defense. Petros barely beat Graham. Yes. They both yes. catastrophically destroyed me. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. But it was like a last second technicality that he won that game. So since then, we've had not a chance to uh, to do this. So you're going to get it together. I, mean, I will give true. it to Ian first. 
as he likes it that way. Ian wants it first. <laughs> it, it's it's like our um, Glorious Bastards episode never happened, Scott. I'm I'm deeply hurt. No, I said you got yours in Inglorious Bastards. Well, yes, you and I no, have talked since. Our, our second yes, Inglorious Bastards. We doubled up, also, Scott. We have, but I doubled up with Ian too because he did the um, from, from Dust till Dawn. Dawn. Mm. Bible study. So yeah, so you both have had your time together right. and a separate. So yeah, Fine. technically you haven't had your own episode, but next year I think you will. We'll start with Ian since he was the very first guest out of the two of you, and then that's just how it'll go. Fuck you, Graham. Ian, what do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase? So I, I always liked the theory it was his soul. Okay, but I am going to go for it is Elvis's gold jumpsuit from True Romance. <laughs> I like that because Elvis is in someone else's vision and now they have their, yeah. their jumpsuit somehow has made it yeah. into the actual real plane of existence. I like this. Yeah. It works. Plus someone is more likely to, the, the thing that always throws me for it being his soul is Tim Roth recognizes it. Yes. It's like, is that, it's like, what I think it you is. know what a soul looks exactly. like? Exactly. Thank but you. imaginary Elvis's jacket. But he does say, I take my boss's dirty laundry, works in no. there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This is what we do here at the church. We unite theology. Just kidding. <laughs> Mr. Jones, can you beat that? Mm. What do you got for us? Well, I mean, the, the correct answer is a light bulb, right? Because that, <laughs> that's what they did. As anyone who's a fan of the show community, which I am, they do a Pulp Fiction episode, and there's a light bulb, and it catches fire in the briefcase. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's a strange one, because I it's the... Um, I like the soul thing, but also like the soul thing is very much. Um, it feels like a weird supernatural thing in a movie that's not particularly supernatural, apart from Green. the like Jules having his kind of come to Jesus moment. There's also in a similar thing they reckon it was inspired by this '50s film noir film. Yep, which we covered. Kiss I covered. Yep, Deadly. Kiss me deadly, and mm-hmm. that's like the gates of hell or something. But again, it just feels like a weird. It's felt too mean? supernatural, right? Whoever told you so, gates hell's long is wrong. They, it's a, it's plutonium. Right, okay. So someone stole some plutonium from the Manhattan Project. Ah, okay. Ah, yes. Yes. And also was used by Mr. Steven Spielberg in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open the, the Ark and the light flashes out and it kills all the, the Jews. Or the Jews. The Germans, sorry. They were trying to kill the Jews. Killed all the German Nazis. That was, that was Schindler's List. That's a different Spielberg yes, movie. Yes, Schindler's List. Yes, that's right. That little girl opens the box and that's why her red... Anyways, spoiler alert for a movie that was 30 years old. So what... So what I'm sorry, did we ever come down to what it was? Or we... I forgot. We're, we're fucking no, with you. Apologize. No, I mean, light bulb, but also I just think some kind of... Just gold. Gold bullion. Yeah, some, some kind of... Uh, and we just lost Graham's video. No, I'm yeah. It's it's doing the whole. It's it's freezing. Gotcha. Thing, so I'm 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 freeing up. Some All you noise. had to do was say you wanted to start, and we would have been okay with that. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we know you, Graham. We yeah. know. Yeah. yeah fine. Well, you know, Bob's your uncle. All right. We'll start with Graham. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite saying. Uh, Mr. Jones, what kind of job was Mr. Purple on, as is referred to by Joe Cabot in Reservoir Dogs? Um. I just, I, something, something sexual, I think. <laughs> just something deeply, deeply illicit and sexual. He was the gimp. In, no, <laughs> but I, I like to think that there was, um, I like to think there's some kind of link with like the, 
why did Tarantino verse like Tarantino's done with a lot of things. So I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'll tell you what he was doing. He was getting the light bulb for the box in Pulp Fiction. That's what he was doing. <laughs> it's like a fab. It's, it's a Fabergé light bulb. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's a very very expensive that you may or like, may not shove up your ass in a sexual connotation. That's where he had to get it from. That's the sexual part. He had to remove that golden Fabergé light egg from someone's ass because they were using it as an ass plug. And then he put it in the fucking box. Gotcha. Why do I... Makes sense. Why do... (laughs) Regardless of who, what combination of us we're on and what podcast it is, it always turns into butt stuff. (laughs) I think that's just the way it's always going to be. No, that's fine. That's completely fine. Because I think as men, we can make fun of things going up our asses, as opposed to saying that we got it out of a woman's you-know-what. I think that really we then become real creeps. We're like on some island of pedophiles, and it's over with. So as long as we just talk about <laughs> eggs going up other people's asses, it's good to go. I'm just saying. Yeah. I mean, in Pulp Fiction, a man gets raped, and we're like, all right, good. Whew. Whew. We avoided one there. <laughs> That's completely <laughs> really fine. sidestep that. Uh, well, Mr. I mean, how do you top this one, Mr. Harry's? Uh, what do you got besides... Actually, should we make note of that on your episode recently? Well, this has been a couple months by these people. <laughs> One of Graham's toys that should have been brought to life <laughs> was a fist, a fisting yeah. dildo. I'm just saying there does seem to be maybe Graham is, you know, then what they say is like if you if you had you keep dating the same people that the problem is you, it's not those people. Like you keep, <laughs> I'm just saying yeah. if there's an ass thing and maybe Graham. Just saying, if things are going up people's asses, I'm going to I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Didn't mention asses in, in the uh, light bulb scenario. We did that talk about you using... Oh, we but, did you did, about you, using but you did say it was a sex act. act. So the only oh. way it could have been a sex act for him to retrieve yeah, it, but yeah. it had to be someone using it as an ass yeah. plug. So. No. Uh, in fairness, not, you're right. With that you lack did not of imagination, say yes, Scott, <laughs> that would be the only way you could do it. Well, you know what? You did not give us more details, so... All right, we're going to We're going to keep moving. We're going anyway, yeah. to turn into something different. <laughs> so, Mr. Purple, the movie, the thing is completely something else <laughs> from Brazzers. I'm just kidding. Um, yes, Mr. Purple, Joe Gabbett on a job retrieving things. Uh, so, my answer to put my tin foil cap on is there is no Mr. Purple. I think he just <laughs> didn't like Mr. Pink, and he is lying to him. Because Mr. Pink wanted to be Mr. Purple, and fuck that guy. So there you have it. I, I am going full on Mr. Purple is a lie. So there you go. We've got uh, Mr. Purple is a big fuck you to Mr. Pink, or retrieving Fabergé light bulb eggs out of people's asses. You choose, fans. You choose. Welcome to the <laughs> church. <laughs> Mr. Frickin' Harry's, do you feel Vernita Green's daughter, Nikki, gets her revenge on the bride? I think she does but i then think the bride's daughter will see it and she will then seek revenge and then it will just end up in an endless ping pong match of, of revenge of revenge because the whole point is you know revenge never works and all of that shit so yeah i think it is just going to be it'll be kill bill kill the bride kill whoever kill them kill, <laughs> kill everyone. this bitch and kill just, you fuck you mr purple who's got the eggs yeah, just constantly, <laughs> a constant revenge daisy chain. I'm in for it. I mean, we're getting a thousand fucking Fast and the Furious says I would prefer a lot mm. more Kill Bills than these fucking pieces of shit. Hey, Come on. hey. And, uh, listen, <laughs> fuck Dom. Fuck Fast and Furious. He could oh, put an Kill Bill in ass. space. Kill Bill in space is I a film I'd watch. This must be Machete in space. True. Think about that. Danny Trejo in space. Tarantino Star Trek movie, for all we know, 
was Kill Bill in space. Yes, basically, but didn't happen. So Fuck there it. may or may not be a series coming out in the third season about all the blue balls. I don't know. Maybe I just <laughs> gave up a little information. Who knows? Oh, oh. oh. Mr. Ooh, Jones knows. is Nikki fucking up B and BB or... Did she just become a Girl Scout, sell cookies, and became Oprah Winfrey? She's a world-renowned woman talk show host. I don't know. Are these the two options? <laughs> no, so that's it. That's it. Those <laughs> are it. Now, what do you think happens? Did, does she get revenge or not? No, because if she did, we'd have got Kill Bill 3. Which is a boring answer, but it's the right answer. <sighs> the guest that nobody asked for. Welcome to <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's see if you can fucking pull this one out of the fire with number four. Mm. What does Aldo fucking Rain do after World War II? Um, after World War II, Aldo Rain, um, I think he opens up uh, hairdressers. <laughs> just, a, just a barbershop. Calls it scalped. Uh, lives away, you know, shaves heads. Well done. I like does that. his thing. Well done. Yeah. Goes home and all he knows how to do is remove hair from people's scalps. He's like, fuck it. I'm a barber now. It takes a while for him to, you know, leave the scalp on, but um, he gets there. Oh, she's just, so he's just, you know, a couple people just getting fucking cleaned up. Yeah. 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 Right. Can you take it right down to the skull? That's fantastic. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Mr. Harry's, what do you got? So, Graham is actually wrong there. There's, there is other things Aldo can do aside from scalping. <laughs> and that is pitch perfect Italian accents. <laughs> so, I think Aldo Rain is opening a pizzeria. <laughs> Thank you, one, for saying that word correctly. All right. I've heard a couple of my English. I haven't corrected them. A pizzeria, it's pizzeria. All right. It's pizzeria is easy. Yeah, well, I, it's no, literally no. got pizza in. I I know. <laughs> You'd hope know. pizza had a pizza in, otherwise yes, it'd be severe at this point. Well, you're lactose intolerant, so you, if anything, hope oh, it's just that like a salad buffet. For you. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it fuck your jeans, man. You may be from Vikings, but man, those are some soft ass Vikings. Can't take cheese. <laughs> Fucking Christ, man. Oh, I'd really be shot in the face, honestly, if I couldn't eat pizza. I had pizza for lunch today. It's how good it is. Anyways. All right, so we've got either Aldo Rain either scalps people or shaves their head down bald, for people like me, or he opens a pizzeria and calls it Golamis. <laughs> and one of the guys, oh, it's too bad, Dominic the Coco. He's not going to be able to work the shop. He's dead. Oh, he's been perfect. Dominic the Coco. Oh, well, thank you, gentlemen. Those were some of the best and worst answers I've had so far. So there's a mix of bad. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is The Hateful Eight. Let the investigation begin. And now we're going to jump into our first movie. It's time to call our first witness. Our first witness is the 1982 sci-fi horror film, The Thing, written by Bill Lancaster and based on the novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mauser, Joe Polis, Donald Moffat, and Thomas Waits. 
made on a budget of $15 million and grossing $19.6 million at the box office. It holds an 8.2 IMDb rating and an 85 critics and 92 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Now taking the witness stand, The Thing. Gentlemen, I'm going to give you a little information, then we'll jump in. Did you know that this is Mr. Carpenter's personal favorite film of his that he has directed? I... Did it? No, I didn't. Yes, he has picked this as the one film that he has enjoyed the most in his directing career. And here's a sweet thing for the two of you. Did you know that it is a tradition on British Antarctic Research Station to watch The Thing as a part of their Midwinter Fest and celebration every June 21st because they're in the fucking Southern Hemisphere, which would be a perfect double bill since in the Northern Hemisphere in England, oh, you two oh. motherfuckers do Midsummer. So oh I'm just no saying like oh. Midsummer and The Thing <laughs> are both watched. They both work together June 21st next year. Whatever one you're doing, you've got to double bill it now because your own fucking research people watch this every June 21st when they're down there in their little Antarctic thing holding each other and having little tackles with one another. <laughs> There's nothing else to do. There. There's nothing else to do. We watch the thing and then we give each other the thing. All right. Anyway, sorry. I was sliding on from that. <laughs> now, at the time and still to this day, this film is considered a benchmark in special makeup effects. They were created by Rob Botton when he was only 20 fucking two years old. Oh, fuck off. I have done nothing with my fucking life. When I read that and then rewatched this movie, sitting there watching these and going, man, those are pretty fucking good even now. Going, fuck, at 22, I was probably just still jerking off and not doing a goddamn thing. And this guy is creating special effects that are now just industry standards. I think people go to CGI because they can't do this anymore. They don't have the skills to make these practicals anymore. At I, would 22, love, I, practicals I, was, I was working minimum wage for Graham. <laughs> for Graham? <laughs> yeah. And what was Graham working? Uh, that, you know, that sweatshop couldn't staff itself. <laughs> I work a mean sewing machine. <laughs> I, I I have to disagree with the the uh, the reason for CGI though. I think it boils down to money in Hollywood. I, realistically, like I think it's I've yet to see anything that kind of hits the thing standards. But I do really think so much of it just comes down to money, right? So much cheaper to do visual effects, um, special effects, not visual. Well, the effects. the perfect comparison. Just and I'm gonna I'm gonna say this as confusingly as I can because I'm a hilarious <laughs> guy. The perfect comparison is the thing. Because the the prequel yeah. to the thing is also called the thing. Because why the fuck not? And, <laughs> and they do lean heavily into the CGI. And that was ten years old, I think. Doesn't hold up. But no. the thing really, really like. There's bits that the facial hair has aged worse than the effects. Like everything else, or his um little fucking chess computer. Like that ages the film, not the actual effects, which is insanity. Because. Uh, he he did it with like I think the thing effect of the head popping off was done with like melted rulers and chewing gum and shit like that. Like it was a proper I was gonna say Blue Peter thing, but that's a reference which would completely <laughs> sail over you with the American side of the listenership. Yeah, not a clue. But DIY for kids. Yes. Similar to a sweatshop. Yes. If anything. Yes. <laughs> if anything. Oh. Now, as you should or shouldn't know, the unused music. Composed for this film by Mr. Ennio Morricone, 
is placed into the Hateful Eight. He added it to the soundtrack mm. that he also made. Now, the irony of this, and when I, I again, I wrote this down, then rewatched the movie, and I've watched it. I probably watched it once a year, and last year it was on its 40th anniversary, and it came out in the theaters here again. So I went to see it in the theaters, and it's fucking phenomenal. Now, the irony of this is back in 1982, that score for the thing was nominated for a fucking Razzie as the worst score. I remember listening to so when I read that, I was like, okay, maybe it does suck. Like, I was just thinking, maybe I just remember the visuals, and maybe the music is shit. And then I watched it, and I was like, what, was, what were the scores going on in 1982 that this was the worst score? And the irony of that is, well, parts of that very score that weren't used go into the Hateful Eight, and it wins him a fucking Oscar. The only Oscars ever won for Ennio Morricone. So fuck yourselves, Razzie. Put that in your ass cheek with a nice fucking rose-colored fucking light bulb and eat dick. I'll be honest with you guys. I didn't realize until this, like, researching everything we're talking about that it was Ennio Morricone. Like, it's such like a... it. Given what we... You know, there's no mm-hmm. whistling. There's, <laughs> there's none no of, whistling. like, the usual yeah, yeah. kind of him <laughs> stuff. So, and... I think I've always just assumed it was John Carpenter. I was going to say, because Carpenter usually yeah. does his own. But when you listen to it, it's missing all the synth. So mm. that's yeah. the key. So it's weird. Carpenter does synth. There's no synth. But it doesn't have the usual Morricone whistles or this and that. But yeah. it's creepy as fuck, and it works so well. It's like when I found out um, Hans Zimmer did the score to Cool Runnings. It's just... It Someone had feel, to. Yeah, Someone it doesn't to. feel like those <laughs> things gel together. And talking of wor- the worst score of 1982, I mean, if you were to ask the people of El Salvador, it would be them losing 10-1 to Hungary in the World Cup. I please say you came prepared for that. <sighs> I, it was a little bit of googling. <laughs> if nothing else, folks, you take away is you will take away that El Salvador was beaten the worst in 1982. No one else. Not a baseball team, not possibly a football <laughs> score, but this football game, this international clash, definitely was the worst score from 82. However, there's a little synergy from best and worst of the years. Now, as we know, in 2023, the entire world went fucking batshit crazy for Barbenheimer, as both Oppenheimer and Barbie opened on the same day. However, the Church of Tarantino would like to claim that the most significant simultaneous opening ever did not happen this year. It happened on June 25th, 1982, when The Thing and Blade Runner both opened on the same day. Fucking hell. The Thing Runner, or Blade Thing, whichever one you want to go with. And if you want to talk about reusing (laughs) uh, pieces from a movie, the bits at the end of Blade Runner and the end of The Shining, right? Yes! Yes. Yeah, they were. Yeah. When the the, uh, forced narration part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but everything was fine. I ended up fucking the robot and she didn't die. It was great. The end. That's that is I'm fairly sure line for line. The duration. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I believe I even hear Harrison Ford saying it just like that too. Yeah. I was try- I was trying. That was me, guys. It was it wasn't Harrison Ford. It was me the whole time. Jeez. Oh, like, hey, don't fucking worry about it. I fucked the robot. She's good. Why don't you go hit the exits? All right. See you later. See we'll see you next sure. summer in Return of the Jedi. All right, have a good week. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I did see both Barbie and Oppenheimer, and I did enjoy the hell out of both of them. At this current stage, and it's not fair to them because this is 40, they're 40 years ahead, but they've got a long way to go to still be in the same sentence as The Thing and Blade Runner. That's all I'm saying. Just saying. Not as bad as El Salvador getting beat, but hey, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> How are El Salvador, Salvador doing this year? Exactly. They'll never forget. All right, let's talk about this motherfucker. Um, as you were saying about 
you know, Mr. McCready there, Mr. Kurt Russell. I'm going to go out and say that I think when he says cheating bitch moment, he dumps his drink into the, the computer because he's losing a computer chess. He is the original video game rage quitter. Find me someone <laughs> who did it first. Find me someone who did it first. I'm just saying the original rage quitter is fucking McCready. At the very least, he's probably the only person ever to do it in Antarctica. There's that too. Like, and possibly yes. possibly still the only person to rage quit in Antarctica. <laughs> and maybe the best rage quit. I Every think pe- so. Uh, I other, think people, so. other people turn off the game or they'll break a controller. He said, fuck this whole computer. He's been there a week. They've got a whole winter to go. And he's like, fuck this bitch. Now, to be fair, if the internet was still was around, he would not have rage quit like that. You do not no. stay in Antarctica and get rid of your chance of porn. You, you just don't. You don't. He's not rage quitting. He's just not. Yeah. I also think that maybe Captain Scott rage quit in Antarctica first, right? I was contemplating that joke, but I decided <laughs> too soon. It's been 115 <laughs> years, but, but still, uh, damn you, Edmondson. I said video game rage quit. Right? <laughs> Fair point, yeah. Welcome to the Church of Tarantino. We are highbrow this week, this month. Yep. <laughs> yep. Thanks Ooh. for having us on, Scott. Oh. Anyway, the thing's great. Yes, and let's move yeah. on. No, no. So... Did anybody, again, I know this is 1982, but, and you're in Europe, so maybe you can explain this to us. Is Norway as big a bunch of pussies as this army that they are? Is the Norwegian army, like, sound because if they shoot as bad as these fuck knuckles from their country in this movie, they're in deep shit. I can see why they want to, Putin's coming. Putin's coming for them. If he ever gets wind of the thing and how horribly they shoot, and... What the fuck's with the grenade guy? Like, who throws grenades at dogs? Like, I feel like John Carpenter's on set and he goes, can we get some grenades? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, let's throw them into into the snow. I I don't know why. I feel like this is something that we would do. Discuss. It's the kind of thing he mentioned in passing. Like, oh, you know what would be great? (laughs) Grenades. And the armorer was like, oh, we got grenades. We we got grenades? Should we just just chuck a couple? No, it's fine. They got Danny McBride from... uh, Tropic Thunder, he's like, big ass <laughs> yeah. titties. <laughs> I wonder if while they're on set, that dog was being a fucking piece of shit. And he goes, that fucking grenades. dog doesn't hit its fucking mark again. I'm going to throw a fucking grenade at it. And someone's like, wait, oh, what did you say? <laughs> We've got grenades. We're in Antarctica. There's no yeah, Peter at this point. I don't think anyone's even paying attention. We have grenades. He goes, are we going to get in trouble if we hit him with a grenade? <laughs> he goes, ah, let's see what it looks like on film. I, that, I did think that this rewatch of... The entire film could have been avoided if either, because there are two questions or two culprits here, right? Either he's a bad shot or there's a bad helicopter pilot. Mm. So which, you know, and possibly both, you know, both of them could be shit here. The sad thing is the guy who can't shoot gets shot. And the fucker who can't fly the plane blows or the helicopter blows himself and the helicopter up because he drops the fucking grenade and dives on it. So and then the dog boom. survives. And the dog survives. You watch it and you go, these guys can't fucking shoot for fucking shit. And the dog's not running that fast. And to be fair to the dog, it is snow. So I do give, but I feel like he could have jumped out of the helicopter and landed on the dog and killed the dog quicker than the dog could have got away from the helicopter. But also, to be fair to them, I'm not sure their army, army, the way we would see it. I think they're more, he's a scientist with a gun in a helicopter. True. What we've learned is, at least here in America, is the Vikings can't get the job done. So... Uh, why? 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 Why are we doing this? <laughs> it's low-hanging low fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All 
we're saying is if Baker Mayfield can win, then maybe Tom Brady's not that good. All because I got the I got one I got one win. We got one win over you, and that's all I'm gonna hold on to. I know by the time this podcast comes out, it's probably been a shit show. So, anyways. Now, I don't know if you two noticed, and I was trying to really pay attention this time. I wanted to sound smart when it came out, because normally the thing is one of those movies where I just thoroughly enjoy watching, but then as we get going, I start to wonder in the tag game who actually is or isn't the thing, you know, who actually could or couldn't be the person who's been who's been assimilated. So the very first person that that dog touches is Benning. Now, while he may not be the first one assimilated, it's weird because the dog touches him, and then he gets assimilated by the remaining cells that are alive from the thing yeah. they bring back. Which, again, that's strange, right? Like, they fuck themselves. Like, even though the dog's there, the dog technically, we know it's the dog once it does its thing. But they bring back the body first. The body of the mutated thing that was stopped by the Norwegians. Yeah, And the cells yeah. are still moving. And Benning is the one who becomes the first one to get caught transforming. But he's also the first one that the dog runs up to because he also gets shot in the leg because, you know, the dog runs up to him. So it's just interesting because it's a cool little moment, but the dog isn't the one who actually assimilates him. It ends up being the goop from the cells that are still there from that charred up body that was freezing up in the ice. I I'd never made that connection before because I did the same thing rewatching it this time of, right, I am going to I'm going to focus. I'm going to figure out <laughs> what's going on here. He's a terrible shot. Could it be now? <laughs> but yeah, it, it's the it really lends itself to. And again, it's helpful that it's aged as well as it has. But it really Agreed. lends itself more so than more so than a lot of films, I think, to the rewatch because of it. Because mm-hmm. John Carpenter is also incredible at laying out the story, so you know it's nothing's done by accident with things like that. You should be able to, to an extent, trace it. And then towards the end, it is. According, if we don't count the prequel, which <laughs> no one should, it's impossible, I think, to actually figure out what's going on at the end. Yes. But everyone else, you can kind of at least get an idea of where and when it was. But then there becomes like that moment of like that. There's almost like two of them moving around. You know, like yeah. that's a great thing about the film is as it gets going, when when Mr. Diabetes, Mr. Wilbur Brimley starts losing his mind and eventually he turns, there's mm. someone else who's also... One who's also trying to set up McCready, so this thing is awfully smart. And then that's the one who I believe is the one that uh, gets Mr. And we'll talk about that in a second because it's a real chilling moment. A, a thing that I've seen a bunch of times and did not pay attention to it until it was fucking. I was like, oh my God, how did I miss this? But you know, fuck, we'll go into it <laughs> because we'll just keep going through this. But yeah. if you noticed Blair, when he, after he has his fucking breakdown and he's put out there. In the shed. There's a moment later on when they come out to talk to him. And he goes, I'm fine. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Did you notice what is literally right beside him? Did you notice what's... Oh, the noose. The noose. The noose (laughs) is the giveaway that Blair has been assimilated. Blair made the noose because he was going to kill himself so that he couldn't be assimilated so that he would not be able to turn because he knows exactly what's going on. He's the one who went through that computer that, like, I love the Atari graphics. It's just so good. Yeah. In 1982, yeah. they're like, look at these graphics. Unbelievable. Now you're looking at them like, what is this, fucking asteroids? Um, but his, his assimilation, based on the world's population of 1982, he believes that in 27,000 hours, which accumulates to 1,125 days or three years and a month, the entire world will be assimilated. Easy. Yeah. So he knows this. So then when he's in that shack, 
it should have given it away that he's, or I mean, obviously we learn later once we, you know, he, we, everyone goes down and finds out. But you should have known that even McCready, everyone should have noticed it. That noose is hanging there. No one mentions it, which I love. No one makes mention of it, but it's chilling. And you're like, why is that there? Because he was going to hang himself. And he never got the opportunity to because he got assimilated before he could. He realized that the only way out, I'm going to kill myself. Because he realized now that he's been separated, he was the most likely candidate to be assimilated next. It fucking dawned on me as I'm sitting on my couch and going, how the fuck have yeah. I seen this movie as much as I have? And it's just now fucking landing in my lap that, oh, the minute you see this movie, that's the, first, that's the giveaway sign. And yeah. you just look past it. I'm learning so much about the thing. This is great. But yeah, because the thing the thing wouldn't necessarily know the concept of a fucking noose and what no. that means, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that's that's very. I but also that is a very it's chilling. But it oh, is a very is. funny scene. Yes, like yes. the dark comedy there, and and I mean obviously hateful eight as well. Like the dark comedy in it is just mm-hmm. insane. Like to keep you like on literally on the edge of your seat, questioning everything, and then it's just like <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> Like I said, don't, I don't want you to think I'm some kind of mystic. It took me as many times as I've seen it to this last time to really pay attention to the fact that there's a noose and not just think it was just a prop that was always there and not even ask questions about it. Like all of a sudden, I was like, and like I paused the movie and I was, I almost, I mean, my wife doesn't care. I wanted to go run and go, honey, I've solved, <laughs> solved the riddles. It's, it's nope, it's, it gives a shit. It's, it's a cute movie. That, that's why the film's so good. Is that yes? You know what? The 40, 40, 41 40, years, 41 later, years now. I know. You can still watch it and pick up stuff you hadn't picked up before. Because I've seen this easily 10 plus times, mm-hmm. easily. And that I've never made the connection with it. Like you said, th- th- there, are, there are other bits of, again, like, oh, the dog's near him. That's this. He's just left the room. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But yeah, never made, never made the connection with that. And that's the only. That's the really only telltale sign that I feel, and again, I have to probably watch it four more times to find, you know, to really look. But that one's the real telltale sign that he, that someone has been assimilated. And yeah. then the one guy starts to feel sick, which was kind of cool too. I forget his name, but he, you know, he's the one whose head falls off. You know, when, uh, when he's on the operating table, yes. his stomach yeah, yeah. opens up. What was cool about that is it gave a new level of what the the, the whatever the animal, you know, that this alien was is. He's getting sick and doesn't realize he's the, like, he doesn't realize he's the thing. You know what I mean? Like, he's going around, boarding up things. Like, he's going through the motions and doesn't realize that he's been assimilated. Like, like, like there's a weird disconnect because, you know, the first time we see Benny, when he goes running out and he's not fully formed yet, and then they set him on fire and he has that chilling fucking turn and, you know, the eyes are wide. He does that, whatever Mm -hmm. that scream is that fucking just chills it to the bone. This guy seemed like it seems like each organism is a little different, you know, that when it breaks up the different cells, because he truly looks like he is going to feel sick and he doesn't realize that he is part of, you know, he's not like nervous. He's just kind of like, God, I feel like I got to take a shit. You know what I mean? Like he had that look of like, oh, man, that, yeah, that Taco Bell is fucking running through me. That's that's kind of like classic, like. That's how parasites kind of work, right? And this is, yeah. I, I think it's it's the take on like the alien parasite. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's some fascinating things like innate. I don't know if you've seen like the the zombie snails that get the like the little maggots that go into their eye antenna things and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. they don't. They just kind of turn into these things. They go about doing their normal thing, but they're living for the parasite. And I guess that's kind of the the same kind of scenario right yeah the one thing i love about it is like each iteration of what we get from this this alien species is different 
You know, like it, it's not the same. I think I liked it. That's what makes this movie so amazing and why it's such a classic is if you watch it on the surface, oh, it's a cool horror alien invasion movie. But when you start to pay attention to it, like really pay attention to it, you start to realize that the thing, even in and of itself, is different. There's just different ways that it'll it'll take things over. Like the one that takes over Wilford Brimley's character is super fucking smart. Like it's taking parts from like fucking snow plows and helicopters and building its own spaceship to get the fuck out of there. Meanwhile, another one, as you said, it's like a parasite and has no fucking clue that it is not the human being. It thinks it's a human being. It doesn't realize it's a thing until it gets sick and drops. And then that parasite, whatever brain takes over and it becomes a thing. It bites the guy's hands off and his head falls off and all that cool shit. But up until that moment that he's on that operating table, it's acting. It's, it, the, its host is still acting as if it's human. It has no clue that it is not the, it's the copy and not the original. But also that's exactly what that thing had to do in the moment to be able to then assimilate other people right like yeah. it is using so whether it is learning how things are going and you know figuring out ah yeah it's very very interesting but again it just makes because everything is so different that is the sheer paranoia running through the whole thing because <laughs> mm-hmm. again like again seen it 10 plus times over a very long I, this is one of those films i watched far too early so <laughs> dad introduced me to the dad introduced me to the thing that sounds horrific but <laughs> i watched this young and it is like you still there's so much paranoia i still don't have a read on the ending right like it's just so incredible i sat there and could not figure it out either which is one of the things i'll bring up when we get into the influences in a little bit about why i think this had such an impact on tarantino but like you said another ominous thing is early on once we're kind of being fed that the dog is something, until the dog itself reveals itself, there's a great job of him shooting this film where that dog is put into like almost every scene. Like it'll cut to a shot of that dog like lurking somewhere in the room watching everybody. And the first time you see the movie, you probably have an idea. You go, huh, you got a suspicion. But after you've seen the movie once, you start to realize how ominous this fucking dog is because it's just, oh, it's like impending doom. Like you know something, it's going to happen and you're just watching it. And it just made me think of this thing because we were making fun of the dog being having grenades thrown at it. But I do feel bad for those real dogs that got fucking pulverized by the fucking, <laughs> the, the fucking slime that was being hit with in real. So I don't know that you could get away with that these days. Like, obviously, the movie standards are different. And obviously, you know, but I don't know how much it hurt the dogs. But the fact it works, right? Like, you really feel bad for these dogs because they're just getting fucking hammered with this fucking, like, Ghostbusters echo slime just blasting them. And I'm sitting there watching the last time. I'm going, that's a real dog. Like, someone yeah. is hitting that thing with a real... I'm thinking, man, this is definitely not on PETA's top 100 films of all time that they like. See, I mean, it's putting dogs into work. <laughs> right? Stunt dogs? Stunt dogs is a occupation. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's Stunt Dog Mike. Stunt Dog Mike. Yeah, right stunt there. Dog <laughs> sounds like a Disney movie from the like early 90s as well. Oh, what, like Golden Retriever? Yeah, like yeah, Air Bud. Uh, this is, this is yeah. a different one. Yeah. You either play <laughs> basketball or a sport like a Golden Retriever, or you get hit with fucking slime. It's interesting as well. You talk about like how it impacts different people in different ways. Um, it just turns dogs into like a big doggy omelette thing, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. A dog cocoon. So that's what I thought too until I watched it again. And I think what was happening, because as they opened up like the other dogs, I think it was assimilating yeah. all the dogs and was then going to all Become, the dogs were going to be yeah, them. Separate be dogs. a pack of dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So like the first few times you watch it, you're going, why is all these dogs inside of it? You're kind of, it's kind of confusing. This is disgusting. But then again, 
It takes like 27 watches, and then you go, oh, you do it, by the way. <laughs> you know, he goes, he's probably similar to all the dogs. Instead of that, that's, that's the thing with, the, with a film like The Thing, because we know all of this now, mm-hmm. but like going into it the first time, you're just expecting like a monster movie. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, suddenly you've got one dog becoming five dogs, becoming five dogs and a radio operator. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it adds such a different, like, Usually the theory in a horror movie is, oh, he's right outside the door, kind of, you know, slow lumbering fuckers. But yeah, it's, this is such like a different edge and way of approaching it. I just, it is so effective and it's mm-hmm. still effective. And I still can't wrap my head around that. Because the thing is with a lot of like sci-fi and horror from the 80s, there's a load of films that I really liked, but I don't want to watch again. I know what you With mean. the worry that like, um, also John, Dark Star. Is John Carpenter, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't rewatched that in a while because I liked it the first time I watched it and I feel like it hasn't aged well. But the thing, yeah, again, watched it this week and it is still holds up as one of the best sci-fi, one of the best sci-fi movies and one of the best horror Ever movies. Made, yes, yeah. yeah. Like, e- easily. Yeah, this and Blade Runner came out on the same fucking day. That's why I was like, this is much. We were spoiled. Those two are like, I know, right? In 1982, they didn't know what they had. They didn't know what they fucking had. Holy shit. I was too young. I, I got to see these on VHS. But yeah, I was blown away again by this film. And there's so much in it that I could see. I'm like, oh, I see where Tarantino, why he decided to pick yeah. this movie to base The Hateful Eight on. And the tension, like, I think the reason that maybe Graham doesn't like it as much, and also, again, he, he has a child now, and so he's in that stage of he'll be watching Teletubbies and all that other kind of crap for the next 52 years, and then he'll come back <laughs> to movies again. Um, Midsommar, oh, is that that cute Teletubby film? But the way I think you and I, Ian, fell for it is because The Hateful Eight, if you like the thing, it's the tension that's ratcheted up. And so mm. Tarantino doesn't use a monster, so to speak, but he uses the American Civil War and the fallout from that as a tension builder, uh, race as a tension builder, beating up a war. Like, he builds up all these people in one place who don't like each other. Which, you know, the difference between the two films is people are stranded together, but they know each other. And then they're stranded together and they fucking hate each other, don't know each other. And it's just this tension keeps building. And, you know, I know the ending of both films. And every time I watch it, I still feel that tension. I still feel that, like, anxiety of, like, oh, even though I know it's coming, it's always those moments you know are coming that you're like. It's similar with, so, obviously, in the thing, it's an alien. Mm-hmm. Um, in... <laughs> Hateful Eight, it's the fact they're gangsters. Because again, like the interesting thing for the Hateful Eight going into it, and the same with the thing, is you don't know how many people you're supposed to be looking out for. Like it could have been one of them. It could be all of them apart from Kurt Russell. Like and and the exactly the same with the thing. It could be all of them apart from Kurt Russell. Except for Kurt Russell. Yep. And Daisy Domergo is technically the dog. Right. Yeah. She's technically the, and I don't yeah. mean that. In a, I don't mean that in like uh, yeah. any other thing. But so we know the dog. When we first see the dog, there's something wrong. They're not throwing grenades yeah. and a gun without the dog is something. We don't know what. We know Daisy Damergu is bad, and we hear that someone's coming for us. So we keep our eyes on her to see what she's doing. But we don't know who else. Like when they line everybody else, we don't know whose blood's gonna go fucking ape shit, and then they're gonna fucking spring out of the fucking chair. We don't know at any moment who is and isn't. Even when we talk about the guy dies and he's doing the compressions, we're still watching McCready, who's freezing. They think he's one of them. He's got the flamethrower and the fucking dynamite, and everyone's looking for a moment to attack him, and then all of a sudden his arms are bit off. You know, it's like we don't know what's happening. Kind of like when all of a sudden they start throwing up blood. Like when OB all of a sudden is making lighting candles. Like, oh, it's OB. And all of a sudden he throws up blood. And we're like, oh, what the fuck? It's those kind of moments I think that Tarantino was able to like put together, which is why I love 
the hateful eight so much is like you said it's really not like a tarantino film but i think that's what i like about it i think it's one of those ones where it's nothing like what he's normally used to do which then puts you on edge because you don't know what he's going to pull off you don't know how he's going to make this story go I, I also personally think a film like that is exactly what tarantino had to make as well i would agree yes just as like uh look i'm not just a genre i am uh like i can just do this well that, i think it's what he did with kill bill right because it was like oh in the 90s oh you you, you gangster movies and then he's like, oh, no, I can do action. You know, yeah. and then he was kind of like, well, I can do this. Guys. Yeah, exactly. Fuck you. <laughs> I can do this. It's just, I love it. I mean, Graham, fucking, fucking nice. Oh, never <laughs> said I didn't like I'm it. I'm messing with you. Okay. <laughs> I'm, how about this? First time I saw it in the theater, I saw it on Christmas Day. I wasn't sure I felt about it. Similar to No Country for Old Men. When I got out of the theater for that, I wasn't sure if I liked the ending. I thought I got robbed. I sat there for two and a half hours, and we weren't going to close this. We were going to tie this up with a nice, neat bow for No Country. The more I watch them, the more I realize how genius they are, and I, my mind on them have both completely changed because I've seen them more times, and then I start to go, okay. Same thing with The Thing. First time I ever saw it, I was like, man, that was a really good movie. It's like it lingers with me, and then the more you watch it, mm-hmm. you know, and like there's more layers, and that's what I love. At the end of uh, No Country for Men, that Tommy Lee Jones speech, at first I was like, okay. But when you start to listen to his words, you realize this is the end of the film. Like, you don't need any more. Tommy Lee Jones is who we've been watching this movie through. He realizes this is no country for old men, and he gives that speech, and you're just kind of, like, haunted by it. Like, he realizes time is coming for him. So the more you watch this film, I think uh, you're going to enjoy it more, Graham. I think you will. And, Ian, I think you're going to enjoy it even more because if you like it going in the first time, you're going to love as you start to peel back the lace and you start to see the breadcrumbs of where things you could have seen where it was coming from, and you go, oh, shit. Well, but again, exactly the same as the thing. Like exactly, yes, yes. exactly the same mm-hmm. of being able to pick up exactly where people where people are mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> at any given moment, and then the ability to where they both just sometimes things are left unanswered and you don't know, and that's mm. like what we asked about Marcel Wallace's briefcase. One of the best things about Pulp Fiction, it's a MacGuffin that we don't need the answer for. Whatever we come up with, whether it's funny or not, whatever we come up with, nothing is going to top it. If he were to say, oh, it's a set of gold coins, he'd be like, oh, really, gold coins? That's fantastic. It's not a Fabergé egg that goes up people's asses. This is bullshit. I'm not watching it again. We've talked about it on uh, our podcast a couple of times, of like Hollywood's insistence on answering everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't, like, you don't have to spoon feed everything. Mm -hmm. To everyone. I was going to say, it's not even like the answering, it's like spelling everything out as well. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we spoke about, we had an episode about tropes recently, but it's like the, the over the top exposition is just like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, I know there's a lot of thick people watching this, but we're not all thick. But if this was a generic director, you would, one, it would have been a solid hour 50 long. So when uh, there are flashbacks, obviously, but you know, like the, the lazy flashback of like cutting back to a line someone had said before and then <laughs> yes. like fast forwarding to them poisoning Previously like, on the thing yeah, yeah exactly that <laughs> it's just like we don't need, if you're not paying attention you don't deserve this payoff they kind of do it in sports movies but also like you hear the echo of what a coach mm, once said yeah get him rocky or what you're like oh okay here it comes here comes the moment the only film i forgive that for is new hope new hope you get but that's but that's not a flashback. That's no, it's Ghost built in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're on the same page. Yeah. 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 Completely different thing. Oh, 100%. 100%. Do you have anything else you'd like to add about this movie? Well, actually, let's let you know, let's discuss the ending. The ending of the film, because, again, I saw it again. I Like I told you, I was, was scholarly today. We're going to fucking figure out, is he or is he not? And I don't fucking know. I don't fucking know. I do not know if... Palmer. 
No, Childs. Childs. I do not know if Childs. I know that McCready's not. I do not know if Childs is. I don't think he is. But honestly, I fucking don't. I would. How about this? I'm so unsure. I would not put anything I love's life on the line with my guess. That's how unsure I am. It's also worth just also explicitly saying Keith David's fucking good, isn't he? Oh, he's awesome. <laughs> Love Keith David. He is. He oh, he's is amazing. Incredible. He's one of like the. What's voices. he not good? Exactly. At? He's reverse giraffe in Rick and Morty. Yes, and he, well, he's also the, and the president. Uh, he's yeah. also the president in Rick and Morty. Oh, he's Keith David's phenomenal. Uh, they live in one of the single yes. best cinematic fight scenes where he goes to another to John Carpenter. With, uh, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so like a kind of so if you count the prequel as canon, which we shouldn't, there is an answer. Yeah, but, but again, is it is it John Carpenter's and their answer? Is this just people coming up with this? That that's that's the thing. So that's the thing. So I don't view it as canon enough to have researched who it was because I prefer not knowing. It's the same with the briefcase. The end of this film is you shouldn't be sure. You shouldn't be able to figure it out because that then hammers home the whole paranoia thing that Mm -hmm. they're kind of putting in from the beginning, right? Like, kind of like, I would argue at the end of Hateful Eight, you still aren't sure if he's the sheriff. And you're not 100% sure if they're both going to die. You don't know. And that's the great thing is, technically, the end of both of those films, they're both there to die. They both believe they're going to die, but we never see them die. We don't know if they're dead. However, I don't want them to suddenly come, you know, come back to life. I want to believe in my head they're both dead or whatever. Well, technically, if Keith David is... If Childs is, he's going to freeze. Oh, they're all fucked. And he's, well, he's <laughs> yeah. going to freeze. And then when they come and find him, he's a survivor and thaw him out, they're all fucked. McCready's just going to yeah. die. Now, do you think, I know McCready says he's too tired to do anything. I know he says that. But do you think that McCready should have lit him on fire just just to be safe? Well, like, I mean, from what you said before, should set them both on fire. Yeah. Well, yes. If you, yes. if you aren't sure, if you aren't even sure if you're the thing, yes. you need to drink a lot of whiskey mm-hmm. and you just go down like a champ. Mm-hmm. But saying that, we don't know if we're the thing. So <laughs> there's only one way to find know, out. True. Yeah. For all we know, we are all the thing. Gentlemen, <laughs> it's time to get out your, your lighters and your a knife. Dishes. We're, we're, setting, we're yeah. setting some of our blood on fire. We're about <laughs> get to find your petri out. Dish. The great thing is if either one of us are, whoever we're living with is fucked. Three of us aren't going <laughs> to yeah. do a damn thing to each other. There is no Zoom thing where I can come through the camera and fuck you up. So you're saying. I do think I do think she could be the thing, to be fair. <laughs> well, you are about to get married, so it's it's the thing. Yeah. Just in case those of us married, it's the thing. You are it's being assimilated. Yes, yeah. you are being assimilated. I'll add, I'll add that into my speech. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to be assimilated by any being, honey, it's you. Uh. It's you. I'm looking forward to your head falling off our bed on our first <laughs> night and then crawling across. All right. So let's jump into the influences. And now it's time to present the evidence. Number one. This film and The Great Silence, which you gentlemen have not seen, but I would highly recommend, as I did on the last episode, clearly helped influence the winter setting of The Hateful Eight. And you gentlemen don't live in a climate where, like I do, where the snow. And if you remember some of my posts last year, we had a pretty big snowstorm. I was outside and where I used to live, and it looked like the hateful eight. And so I took a picture, and I went in that night and watched the hateful eight. But the setting alone helps because when you're trapped, when you can't get anywhere because of snow, you are stuck there. It's a great way to keep people from leaving. Where Reservoir Dogs is a bit of an inspiration, he said on this, but only because they are stuck in one building. Right in one location, Reservoir Dogs. They could have left at any time. 
And they do leave at one point, and they come back. I mean, if they had never returned, think about the rest of the dogs. What if they never returned with the diamonds? They said, fuck it, we're out of here. And they just left everyone <laughs> there. The cops are fucked, right? Like, they let them get away. Like, they were gone. Unless they had someone following But Mr. White, Mr. Pink, and nice guy Eddie could have met with Joe, grabbed the diamonds, and been the fuck out of there. So, anyways, the uh, having the snow is definitely uh, a major influence to help keep them stuck where they are. And, obviously... Being on the, you know, for the thing, being on the continent of Antarctica, pretty much it. You're pretty much fucking there. I don't know what you're researching. I don't know why you'd want to go there. But more power to all of you out there who have ever gone to Antarctica to do some research. Better you than me. Well, they did. They didn't. They didn't nail the door shut in the thing, though. So no, their their door was not a whore. Yeah, but they did seem pretty willy nilly about setting things on fire. True. I was true. sitting the thing one time, going, "This is going to be a negative 100." I was like, "You're just setting this shit on fire like it's fucking nothing." Hey, you know what, though? I guess when you're scared to death of whatever it is, cold weather is nothing compared to what the fuck being a simulated guest must be like. Number two. Now, the basic plot of The Hateful Eight is definitely influenced by this film. A group of people who don't trust one another stuck together in a confined area trapped by a snowstorm. As I said earlier, however, in the thing, the inhabitants know one another and eventually come to distrust each other. Unlike The Hateful Eight, where almost everyone seems to be a stranger and they also distrust one another almost immediately. But then at the end, we have a... Switching of distrusting to becoming simpatico friends. Just a little different twist on the thing and the hateful eight. Number three. If this film didn't inspire QT's desire to have a flamethrower in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, then I don't know what <laughs> film did. This film made me want to go out and get a fucking flamethrower. I mean, flamethrowers, it's the fucking, I don't know, it's the best weapon, unless, of course, you're in World War II and you're the guy holding the flamethrower and you get shot in the tank and you go up to fucking ball of flames. That's got to suck really bad. But I've learned a couple of things. One, flamethrowers are really good at burning aliens. And unbeknownst to Rick Dalton, you cannot turn down the heat. There is no uh, heat-lowering valve on a fucking flamethrower. And, and Leo, right? Wasn't that an Yes, outtake? yes, because that's, yeah. that's what it's from. That's where it kind of got thrown in. It was like, yeah. Leo's like, is we sue somebody? It's like, Rick, it's a, flame it's a fucking flamethrower, bro. <laughs> do, you not, do you not just get given those in elementary school or something over there? Give up flamethrowers? Yeah, here's your Glock, here's your flamethrower. Over here, you can make one pretty easy. I don't know if you have like the home, like we have Home Depot and Lowe's and stuff like that. So they have some flamethrower extensions in some of their departments and all you need is a some butane or some propane, hook that bad boy up and you've got the trigger. Sorry, flamethrower extension. So it's it's a hose that you can use. It's basically for a flamethrower, but it's to to help like melt um Tarvia, blacktop over here. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. So technically, technically it's not a flamethrower. But let me tell you what. It's a motherfucking flamethrower. Let me tell you what. It's a flamethrower. I mean, I used to do the whole like lighter and a can yeah. of deodorant as yeah. a kid. That's yeah. yeah. That's that's the true romance way. Exactly. Yeah. We yeah. call that the Alabama. Give them the old Alabama. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that should be given out to girls instead of rape whistles. Here you go. <laughs> Light people up. It, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> number four. Now, number four is probably one of the biggest, and I didn't realize it until I heard that this was an influence, and then the last couple of years knowing that, I see it now. It's almost. I'm like, how did I not notice this? But the blood test scene. Absolutely 100% influenced Major Warren's Who Poisoned the Coffee confrontation scene and is the only scene from The Thing that most resembles the, the scene that it inspired in The Hateful Eight. Obviously, everyone's tied down. We're going to find out who's The Thing. We're going to burn. We're going to have some conversations. Now, in a way, the poor dog guy, I forget his name now, who gets shot by McCready, murdered by McCready, feels Walk. a little bit like Bob, but he's not Bob because he was just trying yeah. to, he thinks McCready's one, so he gets killed. So Bob is kind of like that guy. Bob, he knows, is not the thing, but he's going to kill Bob anyways because he knows Bob is fucking lying. 
and he's a Mexican, which I always find interesting in The Hateful Eight, where it's a movie about racism and a person who is being, who's been judged racist through racist eyes is also doing the same thing racist. No dogs are Mexicans, but I'll let dogs in. Let that sink in for you. But yes, this scene with the blood test and the scene where we find out if Bob Mowbray or Joe Gage are our people is just like when they sit everyone down and, and tie them up and we eventually find out who our culprit is. Just like we do in this scene, except it ends up with a shootout and someone getting shot in the nuts as opposed to one guy jumping off a chair and eating another man alive. So, kind of fun. Although I do love that saying from the, the colonel guy, if it's not too much trouble, I prefer to spend the rest of the winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite moments in that film. It's just it's the way he just, boom, just explodes suddenly. Number five. Much like this film, where they do tie up Doc, Clark, and Gary because they don't know if they can trust him because they are the ones who have had the most time, they believe, around the dog. The Hateful Eight, similarly, has Bob Mowbray and Joe Gage lined up against the wall because they also don't trust them after the coffee pot was poisoned. It's that shuffling people around it. Who do we trust? The difference in, obviously, The Hateful Eight is all three of those gentlemen are technically the thing, and we don't know that until the moment of... After he shoots Bob and once he gets shot in the nuts. And then we go, okay, all right, now we know who's who. Because at that point, it's now the film, you know, that's where Tarantino's film changes completely away from the thing and gets more Tarantino-y as opposed to Carpenter. Because Carpenter, we still aren't sure and we still don't know. And it ends up being all three of those guys are not the thing, which is pretty, which is pretty fucking cool. I always thought that was pretty cool. Like Clark gets shot in the head. He wasn't it. Uh, Gary, the guy who doesn't want to be tied to the chair. He wasn't the thing. And Doc wasn't the thing. He gets eaten by the fucking thing. So all three of those men who were separated were actually not the thing. And it's the reverse in Tarantino's film. The three men that are separated, they absolutely 100% are our thing in this film. I, I love that scene of the thing where he's like, uh, you've, you've killed a man. You'll have to live with that. And it's like, mate, I have bigger things to worry about right now. I don't care. I do not care at all. And actually in that moment, if you go move for Burmese stuff, I was like, I should kill all of you. And yeah, fuck we're all good of you to go. Guys. Yeah, I know. Number six. The no one's getting out of here alive realization by the last of the survivors is inspired QT to make sure that no one got out of minis alive as well. And that comes down to when Gary, when Gary Knowles and obviously McCready realize the generators killed, they're done. They realize, all right, we're not getting out of here alive, but neither are these motherfuckers. And that's kind of like when Mannix and also Warren realize we're not going to survive this, but we're making sure that this bitch and her gang don't make it off this mountain either. Number seven. We're still going. We got a few more. Both films end with two men, one white and one black, that don't really like one another, spending their final moments together waiting to die. Just perfect synergy between these two films. What I love about the ending of The Hateful Eight is... Even though we know these two men have been on opposite sides since the day they were born, they finally find a little bit of camaraderie based on the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And while he's been busting his balls the whole movie, Mannix, and just coming after him, when he rereads the letter from Lincoln, that's a fake letter, but even he gets touched by I just, I don't I love that moment. I don't know why. We've just hung Domergu, but there's just something sweet about that moment that that's kind of how we send them off. And it's fun in the thing because the two of them are just, it's like a poker game. It's like, who's going to flinch first? Yeah. Are we both going to die? Who's going to die first? So it's uh, a nice little ending for both. Number eight. And finally, the auspicious ending of this film, leaving the viewer to figure out if Childs is or isn't an alien, definitely helped to inspire Tarantino to add this type of element to his films. 
with the what's in the briefcase moment in Pulp Fiction. Is L Driver alive or dead from Kill Bill? And what happened to Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs? Which if you turn up the audio, you can see her. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) but it's those kind of moments, that moment in there where, like you said, it's great. We walk away and we get to discuss it. You know, like until people realize that you could really trump the volume and you can kind of hear Mr. Pink get arrested. At least that's what I believe happened in Reservoir Dogs. There are still people who think he gets, he gets killed or he gets away. No one knows what happens to L Driver. We have no idea if she's alive, if she's dead, if somehow she makes it out of there. And again, as we discussed earlier, we don't know what's in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Now, gentlemen, did anything else in this film you see help to inspire things from The Hateful Eight? And or other movies in the Tarantino verse. I know there were a lot of there were a lot of shots he clearly borrowed or homaged in Hateful Eight from the thing. So like what I always thought was the opening shot of the film, but it's not, because I forget the opening shot of the film is the spaceship crashing. Mm-hmm. And that was not in Hateful Eight. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but like the like the shot of like the uh like the snowy outcrop mountain kind yeah. of thing is very similar to the opening of Hateful Eight. The setting up the guide ropes from um, minis to like the other little buildings around it was very similar to them doing that in the thing as well. Um, That was the one part where my brain just went, oh, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, it was so like, just done with too much purpose for it kind of not to, not to be. No aliens though. No. Which was upsetting. That we know of. That we know know of, true. We don't know. Because it's the beginning of the thing that crashes thousands of years. We don't know. Someone could have jettisoned out and landed in Wyoming. We don't know. Graham, did you see anything or no? Uh, I think you guys have touched touched on all of it, really. The, the big thing for me is just how, and it, it's the, not even the thematic stuff, but just the, the tension piece, right? It's that's, that's the thing that kind of is the overarching piece for me. And um, yeah, it's interesting that not necessarily, I don't think attempts to, to kind of bring the thing into the reservoir dogs, but you know, the, that was kind of feels like the thing light. And then we get like the full kind of West of the thing in hateful eight. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's undeniably a huge, huge influence. Um, if not the same film, but slightly different. Well, I'd be, I'd be interested to know. I love Kurt Russell as an actor. <laughs> Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. But Uh-oh. how tied into it being, influenced by the thing is kurt russell being in that film you get what because it's such an obvious like connection that i just wonder if that kind of stuck with it well i can tell you that i know that they actually watched the whole cast watched the thing with kurt russell they watched the thing preparing for the film tarantino had them watch the thing to prepare for the film so and then you've got the man on set so i'm sure there was some help but the great thing about kurt russell in that film is he doesn't stay as a main. He's not our main character. You know what I mean? Mark Mark Cress Warren is. So we don't realize that until after he gets, you know, he dies. I like that it's passed on. It's almost like as if Childs was the main character in the story and instead of McCready. McCready was killed early on by something, you know, like maybe he he was blown up by the grenade throwing dog killers. For from all Norway. we know, McCready was killed halfway through. Like, For, oh, like you're you know, right. you just you we just d- don't we know. We did find his we don't know. We don't know. But that is one badass motherfucking alien who can handle some dynamite and some fucking flamethrowers. That just tells you America. 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 Fuck yeah. But does does <laughs> anyone do facial hair like Kurt Russell? No. Like no. Fair play to the man. And now it's time to read the verdict. Gentlemen, do you think 
that Tarantino was inspired by this film, or do you think he ripped it off? Mr. Harry's, we'll start with you. I mean, there's a fine line between the two, right? For me, I think it comes down to Tarantino has owned the fact he was heavily influenced by the thing. And I think he's run with the themes and things like that. If he'd ripped it off, he would not be telling people this film was influenced by the thing. <laughs> you can't have the hateful eight the way it is now would not exist without the thing. Like you just can't. Oh, 100%, yeah, there, no. there is yeah. no, no doubt in my mind about that, but I wouldn't say ripped off. I, I think it is just, he was just heavily influenced. Mr. Jones. What say you? It's difficult, right? It is. It's not ripped off completely because there's no aliens, but that we know of. That we know of. <laughs> that we know yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's heavily, heavily influenced. Like you guys have both spoken about, he 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 says just as much. It feels like if you were to say, you know, on I want to say it's Jimmy Fallon where he gets like famous singers on and they pick a song and they <laughs> yeah. pick an artist yes. right and you sing the song in the style of the artist it feels like it's the thing in the style of a western right that that's that's where it's sat yeah. for me he wanted to do the thing he wanted to do a western he thought fuck it let's make the hate flight and it, yeah it's and despite you know trying to trash talk me earlier scott i do like the movie he, he does it very <laughs> well and yeah it's a um it's not ripped off. I was going to say it's loving but it's not ripped off. It is. It is a heavily, heavily influenced movie that uh, does its own thing, and I'm grateful. <laughs> it's it's more like the Grateful Eight. No, but I'm, I'm grateful that they uh, <laughs> both movies exist because they're they're both very good in their own rights. And um, yeah, sorry for that terrible pun. I've been up since half five this morning. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I would say based on it is uh, the one thing Tarantino's able to do is we get a little bit more characters we get we get to know the characters more in the hateful eight than we really do we we have characters we're supposed to know in the thing and mostly it's mccready and then there's the side characters and we get a few instances but we get some really great characters between john ruth between mannix between warren between Don. like we get some really good ones especially our four major ones that we don't get the same in the thing that'd be my caveat to that as well i still don't no. Like you said, you've watched it annually. I've watched it 10 plus times. Mm. I don't know most of the characters' names in the thing. Like, I know there's there's no. that guy. I was yeah. stumbling on yeah. some of the... Yeah, I was stumbling Literally on them watched now. it within yeah. the last week. It's like, the radio, yep. you know, the guy with the perm. The guy who's in the <laughs> jumpsuit. Like, it's like that. I don't Yeah, the guy with the perm who ends up being the guy yeah, in the yeah, chair. Yeah. I don't know who yeah, the fuck his name is. Guy. I have no idea. Like, there was there was a moment where I'd literally Wikipedia'd the cast. And you mentioned someone, it's like, is it him? And clicked on the actor's name and he didn't have a picture. <laughs> I was like, shit, I guess we'll never know. In the case of The Thing, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1965 Spaghetti Western for a few dollars more, written by Luciano Vincenzoni, Sergio Donati, and Sergio Leone, and directed by Sergio Leone, starring Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, Gian Maria Volante, Mara Krupp, Luigi Pastilli, Klaus Kinski, Joseph Egger, Panos Papadopoulos, Benito Stefalani, Robert Carmadil, Aldo Sambrell, 
Luis Rodriguez, and Mario Brega, made on a budget of $600,000 and grossing $25.5 million at the box office. It holds an 8.2 rating on IMDb and a 92 critics and 94 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Two bounty hunters with the same intentions team up to track down an escaped Mexican outlaw, now taking the witness stand for a few dollars more. And our second film is the 1965 Spaghetti Western classic, some say, for a few dollars more from Mr. Sergio Leone. Now, Lee Van Cleef was very grateful for this role. I'm not sure if you gentlemen know this, but he had fallen on hard times during uh, the previous years. A bit of a drinker, they say, a bit of a heavy drinker. And this movie helped to resurrect his career as he had taken up <laughs> painting in the interim as a way to make money. I did not have the time to Google a Van Cleef original. I can only imagine what that must look like. Van Cleef does sound like he should be a Renaissance artist, though, doesn't he? Rather than a... It does. It does sound... You got a Rembrandt? I got a Van Cleef. I will take An original Van Cleef in his drinking days. Yeah. You know what? You have that uh, sounds like a sex act (laughs) on your podcast. The Van Cleef does, in and of itself, sound like a sex act. I Van Cleefed my wife last night. Well, congratulations. <laughs> is that a cock queef? Is that what that is? It's a Van Cleef? <laughs> I think it involves having uh. sex in a transit. <laughs> He's not going to know what a transit is. Uh, I know what a transit, you piece of... <laughs> fucking Viking, goddammit. it. Going, going to Canada. No, I'm just <laughs> I can't. I can't. It's, a, it's, it's a better destination. I'll be honest with you. Uh, now, I don't know if you gentlemen know, but you know, back in the old days, and since you guys had the uh, video nasties things, that's not something we had. When we had a bunch of people putting on warning labels on rap albums. We were more worried about that. Leon inadvertently broke a number of 1960s Hollywood rules with this film. Now, I read this prior to seeing this movie, and we're going to discuss it in a second because, well, I understand it, but it didn't seem all that racy. First one was he showed the shooter and the victim in the same shot. What a maverick. So before, if we were in the same huh. scene and I'm going to shoot Brandon, I knew you were going to pick me. You I, show you were love, pick me. I love that you pause. It's like, if I'm going to shoot Graham. Well, here's the funny thing. I'm right-handed and in my screen, he's to my right, so I was like, it's got to be Graham. Because it, it feels weird for me to shoot this way. Sorry. But if I'm shooting Graham, either there's shots of me firing the gun, and then it's a shot of Graham going, of Graham falling down what he does in his personal time is his own business. Um, if I shoot Graham <laughs> and he takes a bullet and then we find see him dying. In this one, there was the first time that they broke the rule back then that you could not show a person being shot, the person shooting and killing the person in the same frame. That was the first one. They also, and this is something I've learned, that I'm pretty sure the Italians weren't worried about horses, but they showed a horse being gunned down. That was a Hollywood no-no. Another one, they showed marijuana. <gasps> Shock, no, horror. In, <gasps> Hide the, the children. 60s? The devil's coming for us. And they showed a rape scene. Now, as far as rape scenes go, I'm sure in the 1960s, having never shown one on TV before, and this is 11 years before, actually six years before Stanley Kubrick would really show you how to do it, um, in A Clockwork Orange, Graham gave me a little bit of look. Look, look <laughs> I'm saying how to film it, not how to rape people. <laughs> it wasn't a tutorial. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, A Clockwork Orange, a tutorial on how to rape. Well, I guess actually that could be uh, a thing. Anyways, so the the rape scene in it, like the first time you see it, like when the, our villain there kind of rips the, the see-through nightgown. I mean, I don't really know if you need to rip that off to see her naked. We really probably saw it. But he shoots the one guy, and he takes the, the thing off, and then he just, for reasons we don't understand, he rapes her. 
And then when we finally see it, it just kind of looks like an old man falling asleep on top of a woman. Like, it doesn't look like a whole lot of anything. And in fact, she was so unimpressed with it, she took her own life by shooting herself through the ribs. What the fuck? That was pretty intense. That was the most intense thing of the whole film. And she committed suicide by shooting herself through her own lungs. That's impressive. Like, I when I saw I thought... I, why didn't she shoot him? Can we ask that question? I mean, besides the fact that it was written in the script, that if we killed the, the villain before we get to this dirty deeds, this whole movie doesn't work. I mean, besides that fact, why would she not shoot him when she's being raped by him and the gun is so easily available? I guess I'm assuming that the correct answer is you you aren't thinking logically in situations of trauma. I mean, that's the... But even then, it's fight or flight, right? There's not fight, flight, or... Right, yeah. Shoot yourself would, in the lungs. I would, I would argue that is flight <laughs> of the flightiest flight. Yeah. It is. However, you could still kill him and then take your life. You could do both. We could get a twofer here. Yeah. When I see her reaching for the gun, I'm going, okay, at any moment... He's gonna stop this and probably hit her. Like it's gonna get to a little more. It's gonna get to a level of like violence where like Hollywood's gonna be. Oh, whoa, whoa, hold on now. And then all of a sudden we hear the gunshot and he stops. And I thought, oh, she shot him. And then the camera pans down and I gotta be honest, the practical looked pretty good for 1965. But then you see that the bullet hole in the side of her fucking chest. You're like, oh my god! Like she took her own life by shooting herself through the lungs. Like I don't think I've seen anyone take their life that way in another movie. No, was- I think I think. Probably the the correct answer is that it was the 60s and women were more expendable and that just seemed to make sense because everything was from the male perspective, I imagine. Well, and also it's the 60s and we don't have the writing talent Mm. that we do, that we would get to because... I feel like the the filmmakers of the 70s and the Tarantinos and those of the 90s wouldn't have written themselves into a corner where we got to see a flashback of the guy raping. Because then the end, then the rabbit out of the hat thing of it all, the M. Night Shyamalan twist is that's Van Cleef's sister. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Unless From what parents? Unless you're Spanish. Yeah. Yes. Because if you're Spanish, yes, w- he's her dad. <laughs> yes, yes. In the yeah. translation, he's her dad. Which made yeah, more yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they still look nothing alike regardless. No. No, not at all. And I thought, I was like, okay, that's got to be his daughter. Like, that's what we're going to find out. When he goes, it's my sister. I'm thinking, the fuck it is. Like, if that's your sister, mom fucked someone else many years down the road after you for her to be your sister. Because Van Cleef, is, he's he's up there in age as it is. Like, he only had like another 20, 30 years left of his life. So he, you know, he, was, he was, I mean, for the 60s, life was a little different. Like, my grandparents, when they were 60, looked like people who are now in their 80s and 90s. That's, you know, life was a little different for the uh, World War II people. For a gratuitous rape scene, it was very tame compared to what Hollywood has gotten to. But for a taking your own life scene, that was, that really was probably my, <laughs> sounds terrible, but this is the Church of Tarantino. It was like one of my favorite scenes because it was like, how much she did not want this man on top of her, instead of killing, she just took her own life, shot herself through the road. Like, that had to be unbelievably painful. Because I know in the 60s, when you get shot, you die instantly. Because, you know, and you roll down a hill, and then you eventually come to, to rest, and then you die. But in reality, if she shoots herself through the lungs, her lungs collapse, and she asphyxiates. That's awful. Just to prove your point a bit here, and I've, on our podcast, I have done this wrong before. So I'm going to audibly talk through my workings fantastic for a few dollars more came out in 1965 mm-hmm. lee van cleef was born in 1925 that means he was 40 mm-hmm. how how is that a 40 year old man <laughs> i thought he was in his fucking 60s because when you're born in 1925 and you're a child of the depression and a young adult 
of World War II. And when you smoke, like, I and mean, smoking was like breathing. I mean, Joe DiMaggio smoking after games. Babe Ruth is fucking blowing hot dogs and fucking smoking cigars and baseball. They weren't too concerned about health. So you aged a little quicker back then. Yeah, he looked like 150. I feel so much better well, when about you see myself. Him in, um, <laughs> speaking of John Carpenter, when you see him in um, Escape from New York, yeah. he can barely walk. If you watch that movie, now, if you know now that he had real problems walking, you can see the scenes where he has to walk. Like, you can almost see the pain in his face as he has to walk, and they try not to make him walk in a lot of the scenes. But he looked like 110 then, too. And that was another 20 years later, when he was in his 60s. When he was in his 60s, he looked like 100. I, I, I'm, I'm literally Googling a photo of him from that. Fuck, yeah, he does look <laughs> old. I know. Welcome to another episode of Fuck They're Old. Fuck he's old. <laughs> no, he's 40. How about this? He was 40. I'm 47, and I know I look 30 compared to his 40. I look, tw- I look damn near 24. I'm a 1960s 24. I would believe, I would, <laughs> I would, without question, believe you're 40. Like if you just thrown that into a conversation, be like, yeah, no, no, that tracks. Well, yes, because I, yeah, this is the modern yeah. look of 40 now, as opposed to, but in 1960s, yeah. Couple of context clues of kids, you know, stuff like that. But I'm a heartthrob yeah. still in the '60s. I, you, you could play a, a teenager in a 1990s uh, teen movie, or in a high school TV show. Yeah. Hello, I'm only a junior. <laughs> exactly, 11th grade. I don't know. If that, I don't know if that equates to a hey, word. Yeah, in I, I'm in 11th grade. I am a 17-year-old man. I am a 17-year-old man with a full beard. We just have good genes. Hey, who are you taking to homecoming? <laughs> Lee Van Cleve. <laughs> anyway, Lee Van Cleve, speaking of though, he, look, he is one badass motherfucker. He, he out badasses Clint Eastwood in this film, in my opinion. When I saw Van Cleef on screen, I was like, he looks like the real deal. He's a lot more menacing and a lot more threatening. And I do believe because Van Cleef at the time is the more well-renowned actor as opposed to Eastwood. Even though Eastwood is starting to build his cachet with these films, I still think at the time Van Cleef is the guy that people know a little bit more than than Eastwood. When they get to the good, the bad, and the ugly, things are starting to switch. But can you imagine, though, Van Cleef, if he was young enough, (laughs) if he could have been in a a Tarantino film, I think he would have been spectacular in a Tarantino film, in just my opinion. I yeah well I mean the first like twenty minutes of this movie I was like where the hell is Clint Eastwood <laughs> like this this this, this <laughs> yeah. guy is the lead clearly I have put the wrong film on <laughs> yeah no. you were Van Cleef yeah well I I went cheap because if I'd have spent a few dollars more then I would have probably got the right one oh, hey! oh I knew it I knew it <laughs> I knew it it's because you saved that fistful of dollars for the fist I did for. There was a moment of it where I did think I'd had the wrong film because he is very famously <laughs> the man with no name. And he has a name. His yes. name is Manco. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a reason. This is the sequel, whether even though Leon says it's not, it's the sequel to A Fistful of Dollars. And he made this movie called for a few dollars more to shove it in the face of the original production company. And they went and sued each other. There was a lawsuit. He says that it's not the same guy because in that movie, even though there's a man with no name, I think someone calls him Joe at one point. And in this movie, he changes his name. However, he's wearing the same poncho. The poncho actually has the bullet holes that he got at the end of the film that have been sewn up. So it's just Leon doing a Tarantino going like, fuck you. <laughs> Basically, fuck you. It's not him. It's him, but it's not him. So since we're talking about him, the ruse in the beginning, where he's only throwing punches with his left hand and looks like he's a cripple and has no right arm, and then he finally pulls out the gun that they never go back to again. That's the things I'm learning about some of these older films. Like they have these little things they do, like we're gonna do it once, and then they never return to it. 
Like there's no there's no reason why his arm is tucked in and, and hidden until he finally pulls his gun and he never returns to that move again. It, we never see it one time and only. That's it. I was going to say it's the only the best directors that do that though, right? Because famously Tommy Wiseau in the room um, announces so much. That, he announces so much. He does. I can't remember her name, but that she's she's got <laughs> breast cancer and then it's never mentioned again. Donnie's drug problem. We we, we met Tommy Wiseau the other day, Scott. And I, I did see. The, I saw the picture. Fucking weird. <laughs> you mean you had to meet him to learn that? <laughs> Met him behind the perspex because Tommy. <laughs> I mean, talk about a man who was taking a shit and let that ride out for his whole entire fucking career. It was also, a joke the whole time. Holy cow! Play. Sorry, Ian. I interrupted you, making probably what was a, a relevant point to talk about <laughs> Tommy Wiseau. So the relevant point was um, the whole ruse doesn't work when he's like a fucking quick draw artist as well like he doesn't there is no reason for him to or benefit for him already having his hand on his gun like the whole like maybe if they princess brided it and he was shooting people with his left hand and then went oh i'm right-handed and then threw it to the other and the fuck that shit up maybe but it just didn't or t- you mean Ted Lasso in the bar? Yes. Did you even yeah. ask if I throw darts left-handed? <laughs> yeah, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, there's there's zero point to that. And I thought, okay. At first, I thought, oh, maybe I was trying to because I I saw for a, a fistful of dollars. I couldn't remember because I don't know. That was I don't know. It was okay. It was an okay movie. I, I'll just leave it. There. Well, I, won't, I won't shit on anyone who like the movies. The fistful, well, of, fistful, dollars. fistful of dollars, okay. which just to return to terminology used before, is ripped off. <laughs> Yes, it's Yojimbo. However, I couldn't remember if at the end of the movie he got injured, like he'd hurt his arm. So I thought, did he get shot in the arm? Did he lose? I couldn't remember what had happened because I was getting that confused with Django because Django is also a loose ripoff of Fistful of Dollars, which is also a ripoff of Yojimbo. And in that, the original Django, he gets his hand stomped on so he can't use his gun hand anymore. So I was getting the two confused. And so when he doesn't have the arm, I'm thinking, oh, shit, does he not have an arm? And then... He pulls out and go, okay, that must be some kind of like leads people into thinking he doesn't have a quick draw and he's already got his hand on the gun. And then when they go to grab the weapons, he just fucking lights them up. I thought, okay, we're going to see this more. Nope. Done. Over with. Sayonara. Done. We don't. We just needed it for the one scene. And that was that. So movies have definitely, this one of the best thing about this journey is I've learned how different movies have become. How much we have moved forward. So even when people bitch about certain things, there are just certain things that we've gotten past. Like the never-ending maniacal laugh whenever you need to. <laughs> it doesn't matter what happens. Like, like they're beating the shit out of those two guys. Like, <laughs> like, who the fuck does that? I've never seen a video online where someone's being jumped and someone off the side goes, <laughs> that's all that happens in these westerns. Because obviously none of them speak the same language. No one has any idea what they're saying. So they just always laugh. And I always thought, thank God that trope is over with. Can you imagine watching The Hateful Eight and every time someone says, it doesn't matter who it is, <laughs> you would have fucking shot yourself in the river like that woman. That's why she shot herself. She was tired of being on stage, listening to these assholes laugh, and she actually killed herself. That's that Church Tarantino exclusive. She actually killed herself because of that. <laughs> it was a real death. It's also one thing you don't get as much anymore, which I think basically every spaghetti western and kung fu movie to be fair mm-hmm. is they did not record audio no they just shot the film and figured the rest mm-hmm. out later and that is fucking jarring but they still said action and had them do the laugh mm. even if they added in later <laughs> your sister's dead <laughs> like, okay so i'm glad that that has moved past but i will say also there's just something about van cleef 
and Eastwood in a Western. Again, still 1965. So, you know, we're still a couple, we're in the early advent of film. And this is still the Italians trying to do their best impersonation of American Westerns, which some may say they're a little more famous for. I don't know. That's up to other people's interpretations. But Van Cleef and Eastwood kind of feel like a De Niro Pesci. Like what De Niro and Pesci are to gangster films, it feels like Van Cleef and Eastwood are to like Westerns. Like when they're on screen together, they really are good. They were kind of like mesmerized by the two of them. That Clint Stare and then even Van Cleef, he's smoking that fucking pipe like he's fucking Hans Landa. There's just something cool about him in the film. When the two of them are on there, you kind of have that like that, that presence that De Niro and Pesci bring to like a gangster film. Am I right on that or am I wrong on that? You tell me. Yeah, I, I think so. I, th- I think there's also just the, um, it's kind of like a, a weird rivalry slash bromance that develops throughout as well right like it's um because mm-hmm. you, you, you're also never quite sure which way it's going to go like they're kind of you know at the start they're kind of like at each other then there's the common goal and then there's maybe well one this could go one way or the other but um yeah i um i think so i, I i've that was one of the biggest bright spots for, for me was I, i'd never heard carson i'd never even heard of van cleef before seeing this movie and i thought he was really quite good actually i thought it was um yeah i think probably to what you said earlier probably better than eastwood mm-hmm. not to say that eastwood was bad but it was um a, a revelation i will you know i'm I'm ebaying van cleef pictures as we speak because <laughs> he's looking for that van cleef <laughs> that sweet, van cleef original sweet sweet van cleef <laughs> but no, i i i agree like this was so i big being London suburbs, born and raised, I haven't watched that many like old school westerns. Me either. I did this journey. So this, if anything, there were scenes of Clint Eastwood in this where it was just kind of like a, oh, I get it now. This is why everyone likes Clint. Like this is the Clint Eastwood that is kind of held up and is legendarily famous. Because I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, but when I was very young. Because Channel Four serialized it, because it's mm. such a long film, they showed an hour <laughs> of it a day over three days at like one in the afternoon. So Monday <laughs> was the good, Tuesday was the yeah, bad, and, and then the ended up with the ugly. The ugly. Um, mm. yeah. But outside of that, like I've seen, I've seen his other like Gran Torino and stuff like that, but I haven't actually seen a lot of his proper like stereotypical western things and yeah there was seen like the the scene where he's in interviewing that guy in his shack next to like the railway track and it is legitimately <laughs> fucking hilarious and it was during that it was like oh this i get it i get it. this is this is just a cool silly film and that just kind of something clicked it was like i get it I get this. I'm so glad you said that because my note was that old man bitching about the train reminded me of my Cheeky Bastards <laughs> podcast co-host, Steve. All I can think of that, that's fucking Steve, man. He's just fucking the goddamn train. We don't need no trains. <laughs> <laughs> just just fighting against fucking the, whole the growth fucking of humanity. Yes. <laughs> All the steam blowing through. Yeah. But I, I think that was um that was something that I I was quite taken aback by is that there are some quite funny moments there's the bit in the like motel where uh owner's talking to her other half about saying like you just like don't worry about him being tall or something and then the hotel owner like steps down and he's like five foot two or something but it's just like really great comic timing and i wasn't <laughs> expecting it at all but it's also not 1960s funny right no it's just funny no. Yeah, 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 but yeah, wasn't wasn't expecting to laugh like legitimately and sincerely laugh watching for a few dollars more. Uh, you know when um when Clint Eastwood's like 
keeps shooting the hat, but it just mm. kind of goes on a bit too long. Yeah. And that got quite funny as well. And there's no holes in either of the hats. Yeah. Like yeah. Van Cleef shoots his <laughs> in the air and there's not a single hole. Because then they do that that close-up shot of their two hats sitting on the table. Yeah. And now they're they're like bosom buddies. And you're like, not a hole in the hat. Like, how the fuck are you? That's not how hats work. That's not how bullets and hats work. It, that hat should have been shot full of holes, but whatever. But you bring up that lady. I actually expected, and this is probably the 80s person in me. I actually expected that because she was kind of giving him the eye and making the other guy small. Because he goes, you're, he goes, he called her like, you're filthy or something like that because he could tell that she wanted him. I actually expected a scene where we were going to find Clint and, and her in bed together. That's I was actually expecting one of those moments where she was going to be coming out of his room or something like that, but it never transpired, and that was the only moment we got with them. I was a little disappointed. They were kind of like a little bit of fun comic relief there. And we only got, again, that's what we get in this movie. One moment. Hand doesn't work. Oh, there it is. Never see that again. Make fun of the old guy because he's short and probably has a small penis. That's what we're getting at. We never revisited again. It's like, ah, oh, man. Low-hanging fruit was just left on the vine. And there's nothing wrong with low-hanging fruit, guys. We've made a whole <laughs> podcast on it. Well, yes, yes, you have, and that, and no one asked you to do it either, no. which is crazy. No. It's amazing. <laughs> now, one moment I really enjoyed was the when when I forget the again here here it comes with the names. I forget the character who the bad guy uh, Indino Elendino Elendino yeah. the Indian when he's finally released from prison. And we won't even get into the plot of this this the one of the most ridiculous heists ever. It makes zero sense. I don't think they understood it in Italian either. Some safe inside a wood cabinet. Like, I, none of this makes sense. The only reason it happens is because it's the only way that this plot can go forward. You know, Dino had to kill the guy in prison with him who made this cabinet or whatever, and now he knows about It's fucking ridiculous. Ridiculous. I will say yes. one thing about that heist, because it's so fucking funny, is there's the scene where, like, they're scouting it out, and then... Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef are scouting out the scouts and like yes. they're timing the time it takes the guards to circle the building. And you're like, oh, this is gonna be like a like a fucking like Western, like Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. <laughs> it's like they're gonna subtly, like stealthily creep in, get it. And it's like, nah, they drive in and blow the fucking wall up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you didn't have to do any of this. It's that. Plan. Well, even on the day of that, Clint is like hiding underneath some stairs that no one apparently can see, like the shadow, and his body is able to just form into a stair like he's a fucking wonder twin from the Justice League. Fall of a chair! He's like, then they don't see him, like, get the fuck out of here. And it's amazing, there's no one in town until the bank explodes and they all come out. Anywho, um, there's the moment that El Dino, he's now at some church down the street, whatever. And the man who has put him in prison, he, you know, has him go outside and kill the guy's wife and child. I was like, that was pretty brutal. And then he's going to do a gun duel with him. I like the little chime in the watch, the pocket watch, which now that we know why he has that is creepy as fuck. Mm. He kept that watch because he fell in love with the woman he raped and who killed herself because he was raping her. Like that is some fucking twisted shit, which the neat thing about that, not the... <laughs> Stay with me. Hold on. I'll, I'll finish. Um, that's what she said. Is when he's done. When they do the the whole gun thing, and you know they they draw and he kills her, and he you know kills him, and he's thinking about it. He goes and smokes weed to help alleviate the demons in his head. It helps him calm himself down and take himself out of the moment of what that watch means. That was one of the more interesting things that I 
liked about the film and had not seen in a Western before. Some of the other stuff is like fucking almost like Dukes of Hazard hilarity kind of stuff. But that moment was kind of cool. And there's some, just some twisted things like her killing herself the way she does. Him holding on to a piece of jewelry from a person he raped who committed suicide. Like it's kind of fucked up a little bit when you think about it. And then for him, the only way he can subside all those demons in his head is he has to smoke weed. I mean, even in 65, the Italians figured out, yeah, this kind of calms people down. You know, over here in America, they're going to turn you into commies, whatever. But uh, that was kind of a cool moment. Did you guys notice that or enjoy any of the other moments in the film similar to something like that? Or is this the first time you're hearing this and forgot about the film because you fell asleep halfway through it like I almost did? <laughs> I, 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 I really enjoyed the film. <laughs> no, I think the whole, yeah, like it was... Because it was also, like, the slow reveal of it. Mm-hmm. Because originally, like, there were, like, three or four where the scene, they showed more and more of the scene. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, it's his, it's just, he's returned home to his partner. It's like, oh. Right, that's that's the first thing you think is he's yeah. returned oh, home and she's he, cheating on him. Yeah, and it's like, oh, he's returned home to a married woman. Oh, he's, re- oh, oh, okay. This is, <laughs> it gets worse and worse every yeah. time. And then, like you said, yeah, it just keeps getting more and more fucked up with each kind mm-hmm. of flashback to it. And it's, it, yeah, I didn't, I, I, I think the fact you said it was the first time something like that had been shown, allowed to be shown, mm-hmm. um, I think answers a lot of the issues I had. Because that scene clearly comes across as like, uh, it's haggling, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but what if we do this? Like, what if she shoots herself in the side? Can we show that instead? <laughs> like, but yeah, I, I think it, it's like he is a royally fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's my note. I was like, so India was in love with the woman he raped, who killed herself during the act. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that is that is fucked up. That is deep. And then uses that as a prop to kill people. Yes, to play like, the music, the, the extra thing of. Yes. Cool, now, now I'm going to use this. To fuck more people up. Neo does a great job of combining the mu- like <clears throat> that music from that into the scene that leads up to it because it builds because he says when the chimes end you draw and like he's cutting between you know uh, Sergio's cutting between you know insert shots of guys staring and but the music is ramping up with the sound of the chimes and it was just like it's kind of fucking eerie. It's like my one another one of my favorite moments of the movie. I was kind of like damn. Like there were really interesting moments in this film that if it had, if it was made modern times probably could have taken us on a whole different journey and been a lot darker and more exciting Western. But given that the times it's made in and the, probably the shoestring budget that they're made on, they have moments that they're allowed to build, but they're not allowed to keep carrying because you have to keep moving things along for story's sake. You know, like some of the stuff that happens, you're kind of like, like her becoming Van Cleef's sister, you're, you know, you're like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of like, yeah. a, it was like an M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, wait a minute. So the village is in a park in the middle of... America, it's, no one yeah. knows. It's nine eleven. Really? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're like, no one oh. knows. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, cool. That, yeah, and I was like, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I think... what's the other movie? Oh, the tree. The trees are poisoning us. That oh. wasn't a twist. That was just a bad Still, film. Well, I know, but <laughs> like, I, I'm trying to give a little girl. Like, oh, the, the, the trees. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, the I trees think... from the same park. Oh, f- fuck. Now, I, I think if if for a few dollars more was made now. It would have, it would lean more, it, it either would have gone more Western or more comedy or more fucked up. It wouldn't have got like the balance right. 
I think. If it was an A24 Western. Different thing entirely. And the yeah. trailer is just that fucking chime. We don't, and we don't oh, yeah. realize till the end what the significance of that. So that's the A24 version. And at the end, we all go, oh, I feel dirty. It's like hereditary. It would yeah. be the hereditary of fucking Westerns. And I'm kind of down for that. I'm kind of like, I know this sounds sick and twist, but I'm kind of down for that version of that film. I, I mean, have A24 done? They have, they've done. No, but I'm just saying, like, if you take A24 and like, you kind of like in the mindset of the hereditary, oh, yeah. some of the stuff they do, you go, I can kind of see for a few dollars more in that version where we just, where we're really centering on why people are coming after him and we don't know. We think he's lost his love. Like, like you said, we keep getting little different versions of what happened that night. We start off like a jilted lover. Oh, it's a stalker. Oh, it's beyond a stalker. It gets yeah. worse and worse. Yeah. Oh, God, I'd love an A24 version of this. There you go, folks. A24, if you're listening, I think Lee but, Van Cleef's yeah. still alive. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the whole, the whole clock chime stuff and, yeah, when the big reveal and dramatic music, because you also aren't 100% sure why the, it, the music properly cranks up. That's because yes. Clint Eastwood just turns up with another watch. But that whole <laughs> scene was like, this is great. This is, really, this is fucking great. And Clint Eastwood doesn't even get to kill him. Van Cleef's the one who shoots him. So, again, I think this is a Van Cleef film. Even though we're all led to believe that this is Clint Eastwood's movie, it's really Van Cleef because he gets to do the stuff that most heroes get to do in the film. And he's in black, which is one of those first man in black being a good guy as opposed to always being the bad guy type of thing. Too. He is the bad, though, right? In the, in, he's the bad. That in, one guy in, who's yeah. also in... Um, the Holiday. Yeah, but no, yeah, but he's also <laughs> in, uh, he's in the uh, Godfather movies. He's the ugly and obviously, oh, e- the good e- is Eli Wallach, Wallach. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. yeah. So Graham's been kind of quiet. What What did you gentlemen think of this film overall? Obviously, we had a love affair with the thing, but mm. Graham, what was your overall feeling on for a few dollars more? I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. So as mentioned earlier, like I started watching um, Fistful of Dollars, really struggled to get into it. It was just, yeah, it, it was painful. This one, I, I knew I had to watch because we were doing this. Um, so, but I think I would have continued anyway because it did. There was, I don't know, the same, and maybe it was the the Van Cleef element. Maybe it was kind of the bits of humor that were tied into it. But yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised. And similar to what Ian was saying, earlier, I've not watched. I think it's probably a, apart from trying to watch a fistful of dollars. This is kind of the first spaghetti western I've ever watched, and. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't so bad. It, I I don't know if I would you know start doing a Sergio Leone marathon <laughs> or something, but like um, yeah, it was enjoyable. I I I definitely it makes me want to like I would go away and watch Good Bad and the Ugly like because it was it it was good fun and um, love me some Van Cleef. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be a sure. I love me some Van Cleef. Anyway, that'll be just an inside joke. Mr. Harry's, how are you feeling? How'd you feel on this? Same. I so like I said, like I, I haven't watched I think I watched too many bad westerns growing up that it just kind of soured me to them all. And I never it, they were always like, right, I'll get round to it films. I'm not sure if I do a marathon after, but I've definitely made a point of right. Let's see what else is out there then. Because there's been some very good modern Westerns out recently. Mm-hmm. So yep. um, just to name drop it, because more people need to watch it. Um, Hell or High Water, yes. which Hell is phenomenal. Uh, it's a modern day Western. It's incredible. It's, it's just been added to Netflix in the UK. So it's suddenly people have actually got access to watch it. But like this is really kind of warm. Like for a few dollars more, it's really warmed me up to, right, let's go back to the 60s and 70s and see what the fuss was about. 
<laughs> with all of this but i loved it and like i said during the it took a little bit at the beginning but once it clicked that it was it's just cool and silly it was like you just open yourself up to oh okay i get exactly what they're going for now this is just being badass <laughs> this is just being kind of stupid and over the top and it was great and like some like you said some of the it was very in places it still felt very modern and yeah I liked it so much more than I thought. I'd already decided I did wasn't a Clint Eastwood fan. And now it's like, oh, I just haven't watched Clint Eastwood in good <laughs> things. Have you seen The Unforgiven? Uh no, I haven't watched Unforgiven. Okay. That's that's a modern western that he yeah. did in the late early nineties that he won yeah. a war for. That that's fan fantastic. Another one I would highlight you probably because you haven't heard the episode yet, but I would check out the uh The Great Silence, which is also mm. Inspired by this, phenomenal. The villain in that is played by uh, Klinsky, uh, Kinsky. There, uh, he's the guy who's the hunchback for some reason in this movie. He's amazing in that film. I think you'd really like it. It's a, I actually enjoy it a bit more than than this film. But I also enjoyed this film because of the stuff we talked about. Like just the locket moment alone mm. was so different than most of the stuff I've seen. There's, you know, you get your usual haphazard. Every, almost every West I've seen, someone's robbing something. It's Everything's got to be robbed. So I guess that's all they did in the West. But even though some of that stuff's kind of like, ah, all right. But Van Cleef was fantastic. I liked Clint Eastwood as more of the side character. He was a little bit more of the comic relief as a side character. He wasn't just the, you know, stare down the barrel of the gun, slitted eyes. You know, I liked him a little bit more loose. And then, <laughs> that's not weird. And um, just the way the bad guy was kind of delivered to us and how he was very eccentric and just the things he was doing was kind of like, whoa, it was fucked up. You know, like, as you said, like, the more we get that flashback and we realize the significance of that locket, it's really fucked up. It's a fucked up turn. Mm -hmm. And for 1965, it was kind of like, all right, my hat's off to you. That was... That was well done. Well done. And now it's time to present the evidence. All right, so let's jump to the influences. They're not many, but they're still there. Number one. You do not have to be a cinephile to realize that the bounty hunters in Spaghetti Westerns, like this movie, and the majority that he has watched, influenced their appearance in both Tarantino's films Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. I do like the fact that he calls them bounty hunters in his films as opposed to they get the reputation of bounty killer in some of the other films. I kind of like that they, you know, he calls them bounty hunters. And there's one time where, I forget which movie it is, I believe it's in um, Django, one of them calls him a bounty killer. And it's kind of a nice little throwback to these movies. But yeah, in most of these films, even though they do get the name of Bounty Hunter, they're, a lot of the public in the films call them Bounty Killers. Well, I think I read somewhere that this was the film that started shifting Bounty Hunters to a more heroic role rather than, like you said, just killers out for money. Well, that's what The, the Great Silence is all about that, which is really cool. Number two. The second one. Now, I can't prove this officially. But this film, I feel, inspired QT to give Hans Landa a pipe because of how badass and evil it made Van Cleef's character look. When he first had the pipe, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe my note, I'm being, I'm stretching. But the more he had the pipe and the more it became a thing for Van Cleef, I don't remember in many movies that have pipes in them anyways that aren't someone who's, hmm, you know, being sophisticated or intelligent to use it as that's part of the character's trait. I really, and again, I could be wrong, and I'll ask you gentlemen how you feel about it, but as soon as I saw the pipe, I was like, oh, okay. And it kept coming, I was like, this is this is where he kind of lent that little motif over to Lada, which just gave him a little bit more, I mean, when he pulls the big pipe out in Inglorious Bastards, even though it's a funny moment, it's also that big dick move of like, oh, a nice little corn cob pipe, I'm still way ahead of you kind of move. I just... Loved it. Because normally, my you know pipe has always been like Sherlock Holmes as he's figuring out the solution to the crime, you know? So, hmm, let me smoke on this for a moment. Or Popeye the Sailor Man. Not the same kind of connotation. But your feelings on 
the pipe may have influencing him to give Londa one. Oh, I mean, if you're I mean, wrong, it, we're both wrong. <laughs> you felt the same then, yeah. My my only comment would be that it's it's definitely not as weird weird thing to say. It's definitely not as <laughs> big as Landers. Well, <laughs> at least it's not as girthy. Landers was yes. very girthy. Landers got yeah. a, a Defoe. Landers it, smokes a Defoe. The yeah. Defoe pipe does have an elbow. The Defoe pipe, yes. <laughs> As normal people do the Van Cleef. <laughs> but I, yeah, re rewatching it, exactly the same thought. It was like, oh, that's, yep, that's a thing. Tarantino's watched this film. I mean, obviously, the pipes are completely different, and the way, but it's just the way Van Cleef, how cool he looked with the pipe. Even the one scene where he's smoking it, and the guy, the you know, the hunchback, he's like lighting the match and takes his cigarette and is like using it to, to light his, he's like, mm. it's such a big dick movie, just totally fucking. Shitting on this man, but in the coolest way possible. So that was when I knew this was. I was like, "This is a Van Cleef movie." Like with that movie, I was like, "Oh, Clint Eastwood doesn't even do anything nearly as cool as Van Cleef lighting his pipe with another man's fucking cigarillo." So, well, and also like Inglorious Bastards is a it's a Christoph Waltz movie. Like he's yes. he's not the main character, but he is the main character. But yes. also just to go back to the thing about lighting. Uh, so, how is how can they strike matches off everything in the spaghetti western? <laughs> like walls, bits of their clothing, like everything seems Other to be people. a surface. To, everything to was rougher match, back then, right? Listen, it's 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 it's, uh, it's symbolism. <laughs> it's just saying things were rougher back then. <laughs> the men, the women, mm -hmm. some handsome women in some of these films. All I know is this: I know some of these films are shot over in Spain, but they're with Italian actors and actresses. And I know that Italy is known around the world for its beautiful women. They weren't actresses back in the 60s. That's all I'm going to say. Because there are some handsome, handsome dames back in some of these films. And you're like, whoo! Probably more realistic to Frontier Times anyways. But man, the gene pools had not started to mix in a positive way for the Italian actresses in the 60s that made it to Spaghetti Western. So that's all I'll say on that matter. Number three. And finally, the team-up. Of Mr. Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood's character inspired kind of two moments in the film. It would be the team up of Major Warren and John Ruth for the same exact purpose of collecting bounties and protecting bounties, but also Major Warren's kind of team up towards the end with Chris Mannix as both Van Cleef and Eastwood didn't like each other to start with. It's extremely that prevalent when Major Warren and Chris Mannix, who may or may not be a sheriff, we definitely feel that, but as the time moves through and someone poisons the coffee, those two gentlemen become an unlikely team-up that is inspired by the team-up from this film. Gentlemen, is there anything else that you saw in this movie that Tarantino referenced in this film or in another movie? Well, you talk about the, the chimes as a prelude to kind of getting his gun on. Mm -hmm. You know, That's a good term. <laughs> Get your gun on. You know, maybe a, a loose, loose as anything... Um, link but uh ezekiel 2517 um as a prelude uh to mm. shooting a man in the well that's um that's the only thing that really i can make a a bit of a connection it's probably a leap but um yeah but it's not a, it's not a deep it's not a, a far leap I, I can see exactly where you're going with it. it's the pixie dust that gives the inspiration of like ooh, i like that there's this lead up how am i going to do mine as a, a different lead up i like that yeah ian can you top that <laughs> for me it's a difficult one separating the film out from the genre okay because is, is your big take here that the the, the link was they're both westerns no no but i mean like um <laughs> minus spaghetti <laughs> so, um, 
Ennio Morricone. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, yeah. Not, that not, the whole reason. Yeah. Yeah. Like not just in Hateful Eight, but his music has appeared in, you know, uh, it was in one of the Kill Bills. Right? It's in Kill Bill. Yeah. It's in uh, Jingle and Chain. It's in Glorious Bastards. Bastards. Yeah. And it's in this. Yeah. Yeah. So like, but then like, you, can you say that's for a few dollars more or do you say it's Spaghetti Westerns? That's kind of what I meant. But like, I think this being the film that, like you said, Fistful of Dollars is... I still haven't got through a fistful of dollars, but like this being the film that I think really popularized this and really drove this to the direction that it's going. I would say, yeah, Ennio Morricone, I think from this, you can tell the influence from there. And then also again, like you can talk stylistically and some of like the big, like landscape shots and things like that. But again, I think that's more a spaghetti Western thing yeah, than a, yep. for a few dollars more thing, but I, I'll lean, I'll lean on the soundtrack. That's definitely mm-hmm. definitely, especially for obvious reasons, especially for hateful eight. Yes. The man won an Oscar for God's sake, you know, yeah. with some of that 1982 Razzie bullshit music that <laughs> fucking populating it. What a piece of shit. <laughs> It's an un- shit, unearned Oscar. I'll tell you what. How are you gonna? How dare you add Razzy music in? And now it's time to read the verdict. Now, gentlemen, do you feel he was inspired, or did he rip off this film? You gonna go, Greg? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like we'll have the same answer. Yeah, he's inspired. Yeah, it's inspired. <laughs> it's not a rip off at all. There's elements, but um, yeah, it's it was it was inspired. And, um... I think, like to touch on what I said before, like this film inspired the entire spaghetti western genre. Like, and I think part of that is also the hateful eight. Yeah, yeah, it's like the chicken and the egg. Can't have yeah. one before the other. In the case of For a Few Dollars More, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. We're going to wrap this up and maybe we'll find out which one of us was assimilated and which one of us wasn't assimilated by the end of this podcast. Gentlemen, we're going to actually let Graham go first. There you go, Graham. See? Huh? I know you're tired. You can't wait to fall asleep and have your son wake up in about two minutes. Which <laughs> of the two... Oh, I've been there. So glad I'm on the other side of that. I loved him, but man, don't miss those sleepless nights. Did you say I loved him? I, 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 I loved my kids when we did when I had that okay. happen, but I'm so glad that we are long past that. I do not envy you in this moment. Which of the two films that we covered... Did you enjoy more? And which would you recommend to my listeners? Obviously, The Thing. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I can't really compare for a few dollars more. But I would recommend them both because for a few dollars more, as I said earlier, it it took me by surprise. It was enjoyable. It doesn't feel as dated as it should do. And... um, yeah, there's definitely some some bright spots there, and similar to what Ian was saying, like it does make me think. Oh, maybe I'll check a few more of these out. Like, and, and there's a lot of stuff out there that like you feel as someone who you know appreciates cinema that you probably should be watching and tick off your list. And I think, um, yeah, it's definitely given me the inspiration to do that. So yeah, I'd say without a doubt, the thing is the better of the two movies, but watch them both. Mr. Harry's word for word exactly the same. <laughs> like just a, it's like we're on your podcast. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, yeah, the thing is one of my favorite films. Everyone should watch the thing, but also, especially, I think, like our generation of movie fans. I think a lot of the spaghetti western thing has completely passed them by. Agreed. And it turns out, again, from my opinion, anyway, 
unfairly maligned. Yeah. I think some of it is um, like uh, Steve, my co-host on my other podcast, Cheeky Bastards. He was a big Spaghetti Western fan. And my other buddy, Sean, also has been on this podcast. They're big Spaghetti Western fans. I think some of it comes from the fact that their fathers were big Spaghetti Western fans as well and got them into it. My father, and I don't know about your two, but my father was not a big Spaghetti Western fan, so it was not one of the things that I would watch regularly. So it wasn't something I sat down and watched. So I think I've missed them due to that very fact. And now I'm getting into them because of, of this podcast. So I'm starting to see some of the older ones. But it doesn't mean I'm not a Western fan because we talked about Bone Tomahawk and some of the modern Westerns I really enjoyed. So obviously this is one of my favorite Tarantino films. And like you said, I need to go back and check some some more out as well because uh, I haven't given it its due day in the sun. So I, 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 to prove your point, my dad was really into the thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what your mom said. That's why you're here. Anywho, he Van Cleeft. No, sorry, sorry. This is really sorry. <laughs> I hope your dad doesn't listen to this podcast either. Oh, he's gonna be like, who the fuck is that Yankee piece of shit? And he wouldn't be wrong. All right, Mr. Harris, we'll jump back to you now. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references or influences within the Tarantino verse and his films? To an ex- to an extent. Again, like with the so I think the thing. The thing to an extent, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of actually using words. <laughs> the thing, yes, like it 100% obviously opened my eyes to just how The Hateful Eight, you could argue, is basically a remake of The Thing in places. Like, you know, but then also the beginning of Inglorious Bastards with hindsight, the paranoia and things like that, I think is very The Thingy. For, for, for a few dollars more, it's interesting because, like I said, because... I'd made nearly the conscious decision not to watch them. When watching Tarantino films, I always understood what he was influenced by, but didn't have like the dots to connect with. So having for a few dollars more is suddenly like, oh, I there is so much more that he's doing than I necessarily thought he was. Like it's not just a taking story beats, and it's not just the cinematography, and it's not just the characters, or it's every like it's so much deeper than I necessarily thought it was, having not watched Spaghetti Westerns properly. And again, like I, the, our big takeaway for all of us here seems to be we'll start a Spaghetti Western podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Three guys have no yeah. idea what they're talking about. I miss every podcast, right? Oh, that's the Cowboys. <laughs> this week on The Three Amigos, which is not a movie about Westerns, but we'll say it is because they wore sombreros and rode horses. Mr. Jones. Without being too boring, kind of the same. Like the the thing, I mean, as we spoke about earlier, like, Tarantino came out and basically said how much of an influence the thing was. He made them watch it. That wasn't much of a revelation. Um, having not watched the Spaghetti Western kind of stuff, I'd limited, other than the fact that, yeah, this is a Western. Digging a bit deeper into understanding a bit of the um, the kind of things that, the beats that drive those movies. And I think particularly as well, actually talking about Morricone, but like the the use of the, the scores as well, I think is is something that probably stood out a bit more. And you know, my my revelation that um, Jules definitely was inspired by um, the watch. You know, you heard it here first. But yeah, I think um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 clearly obvious where some of these beats and things came from. More and more so revealed in watching. Um, for a few dollars more than than the thing. And finally, we'll start again with you, Mr. Jones. Did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak? And if so, in what way? I don't think so. I think the thing with Tarantino from 
the the start has always been this is a man who is obsessed with cinema and has digested and taken in every film probably that's ever been made and maybe even some that haven't been you know all of the talk in his early days about working at the video store and essentially being he's a fan of cinema first right before he's a before he's a director so the fact that you know he's borrowed beats from here he's taken inspiration from there it doesn't come as a it doesn't come as a surprise from from watching these. So no, I wouldn't say anything has necessarily changed. It's just it's interesting actually taking the time to watch the films in the context of an inspiration of a Tarantino movie, and I guess to borrow your phrase, there, see how the sausage made a little bit more. But yeah, it's it's not not a great kind of change in perception at all. I wouldn't say. And Mr. Harry's closes out with your. Words of philosophical leanings. Yeah, I, I mean, from my side, like, again, similar to what Graham said, I would be more surprised if Tarantino, and I mean this with all of the, your listeners have heard me talk about how much I like Tarantino, so I feel like I could say something that sounds like an insult, but isn't meant as it. I would be more surprised <laughs> if he released a film that was entirely re- original and didn't reference or was inspired by other things because he is he he is he is a director who is influenced by fucking video rental stores and things like that right like of course these films have been influenced by things so i don't think it's impacted like my opinion of him it's just shone a big light on like i said the depth of the you know the sheer depth of what the influence is cuz i don't think i appreciated just how much he is influenced by things i don't think that's a bad thing in the slightest and that's a wrap on this month's episode i would once again like to thank my special guest the duo from the podcast nobody asked for sir ian harry's and his heterosexual life mate sir graham jones for joining me again today i had a fucking blast investigating with them whether or not tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced one of his most underappreciated films the hateful eight now, you can find the links to the podcast Nobody Asked For in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind to take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Sean Wheeler, owner of Scareflare Records, joins me once again for our monthly Himmel devotional. This time, we're taking a deep dive into the Hateful Eight soundtrack. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.